tip today in association with Slattery's of Pecan, your main Peugeot dealer for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie Morning, welcome along to Tip Today, 1800-938-007. That's our free phone number. It won't cost you to make a call. Emma is looking after the programme today. Coming up on this morning's show, what now for Minister Pascal Donoghue? A complete alcohol ban due to come into effect in Ballinaz Riverside Park. We'll be going live there to Ali just before half past nine this morning. We have an update on the N24 project. Officials believe more than half of Ukrainians will stay in Ireland post-war. We'll be hearing some listener opinion on that. We'll be hearing about the notion of the eight-minute phone call as well, which is something I'll be uh, taking great interest in. Um, Horrific dog cruelty, as Pat told you there in Tipperary, seeing three people jailed, and uh, Ireland shines as Oscar nominations are announced. So all of that and much, much more on the way. You can text and WhatsApp. Oh eight three three double one double three double one. You can email tip today at tipfm now, Pascal Donoghue, the Public Expenditure Minister, has sought to shift blame for his election donations controversy amid, um, as the opposition would see as some unresolved questions about the costs. And during a rather stormy debate yesterday, Mr Donoghue blamed a businessman, Michael Stone, the Gael councillor in his constituency, and indeed his own party for the mess that has engulfed the government. Pat Lee is political correspondent for the Irish Times and he joins me now. Pat, good morning to you. Good morning, Fran. Uh, appreciate your time this morning, Pat. Um, was the performance yesterday enough to draw a line under this? I think it's less about the performance uh, and then about the, you know, the facts that were revealed and the coherence or otherwise of the story. And what Donahue did yesterday, and of course, these things take place in the parliamentary context, and you know, there's always a bit of drama with that. I, I guess it goes with the medium. Mm. But I, I suppose if we look at, uh, you know, the explanations that Pascal Donoghue gave and the explanations that were given several hours earlier by Michael Stone, the businessman who was involved in the controversy, uh, who accepted culpability for Donoghue's omissions and therefore his infractions of the rules on political declarations and uh, and apologise and, and, and resign from the two uh, state boards that, uh, that, that, that he sat on on a voluntary basis. And I think, you know, all of you take all of those things together, you look at the debate and you look at the attacks of the opposition, Sinn Féin particularly, on Pascal Donoghue. And while they made it very clear that they didn't believe his account... Uh, that he gave hmm. uh, to the doll, they weren't in a position to disprove it, and I think as long as that remains the case, uh, and and I think it probably will, uh, then you know I think this controversy will recede pretty quickly in the coming days. The calling for the uh, paperwork that he will supply to Sipo to be made publicly available, and if they pour over that, Pat, is it a possibility that they might find something else? Well, look, I mean, 
during this game, as long as I am fan, you know, there's always a possibility <laughs> <laughs> that something will, will jump up and bite you in the tail end, you know. Yeah. But uh, I, I would, I would, I would imagine. I have no knowledge of this, but I, I would imagine that Pascal Donahue's strategy will be very much to uh, to shut this down now. To uh, obviously provide Sipo with whatever it requires for its explanations, but I don't think he will be distributing his submissions to Sippo widely. And I would imagine Norwood's Sippo wants him uh, to do that, given, you know, how it might kind of complicate the integrity of their own investigation uh, into things. Like yourself, I would have interviewed uh, Pascal Dunhu on a, a number of occasions. I mean, this guy, he is always across his brief. He's a great media performer. How did he end up in this rather undignified position, Pat? Yeah, I mean, I suppose that's the question that people have been asking themselves uh, around Leinster House. You know, he's been been Minister for Finance for, what, six years? He was Minister for Public Expenditure for three years for a period holding both briefs simultaneously. Mm. He's now back as Minister for Public Expenditure. He's chairman of the Eurogroup, powerful group of Eurozone finance ministers who meet once a month. And, uh, you know, look, I don't know, Fran, you know, but maybe when you're doing all that sort of, you know, pretty high-grade stuff, you inevitably take your eye off who's putting up your posters uh, at, at, at election time. I don't know. I mean, that is one... You know, that is one, I suppose, outstanding curiosity of the case. The other one, which to my mind is in some respects more surprising, is, you know, how he handled this from the word go. I mean, as is much remarked upon in this morning's papers yesterday was, you know, his third attempt to to try and set the record straight and give his version uh, of uh, of accounts. Two of them took place in the Dáil, one of them in a press conference last Sunday week after uh, the revelations were first were first made public. And, you know, it's kind of a general rule of managing political crises of this type that you assemble all the facts, you get them out all at once, and then, you know, you throw yourself on the mercy of the your public or your political uh, colleagues. But instead, you know, we had the very worst way of doing this, which is, you know, a drip drip Mm. of revelations, Mm. an explanation, then another explanation, and then a correction to that explanation. You know, so, uh, you know, I think to my mind, that's been, uh, that's been, mm, you know, perhaps the most surprising aspect of uh, 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 of the entire episode, because it was very clear last week that this was, you know, quite a damaging political episode for uh, for for Pascal Donahue. What is most surprising, maybe, is 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 that his management of it seems to have contributed to the political damage uh, he will have sustained. So I don't know, Fran. Maybe just just to show that we all have feet to play at the end of the day. Absolutely. Um, where Sippo is concerned, then I mean, it's over to them now. Now, my understanding, Pat, and I'm open to correction here, is that a complaint has been made to them, but they haven't said officially that they're investigating. Is it? Is that? Is that right? Yeah, that's right, Fran. So the process with Sippo is, and you can imagine 
Tipo receives a lot of correspondence, a lot of complaints. And I suspect that in the wake of this, they'll be receiving uh, they'll be receiving many more complaints as political opponents pour over each other's electoral spending returns in the search for inconsistencies or anomalies or undeclared spending or, or, or whatever. But the process at SIPO is it gets a complaint. It has a kind of preliminary evaluation of that complaint and then it decides whether there is grounds for an investigation. So that's the stage, uh, that's the, stage of the process that it's at at the moment. It's evaluating mm. this issue and we'll see then if it, uh, if it wishes to warrant a full investigation. And full investigations are quite rare. They can involve, you know, public, you know, public hearings uh, on the issue. So we will see... The other thing about Hippo, of course, is uh, I'm sure for very good reasons they tend not to be, you know, the quickest yes. state agency yeah. in coming to their conclusions. So um, I suspect we will have to wait some time before we see. And, and, and the irony, of course, the irony is that Hippo is under Pascal Donahue's portfolio, under his jurisdiction. So you'd wonder what's going to happen there. I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure that presents any operational difficulties to be honest now pascal Donahue has said and there are you know there's a proposed it's all of his proposed reforms of sipo really and it's been uh, it's been ongoing for several years sipo has constantly been asking for for new powers one of which i think would be important which is the power to independently uh to, to independently begin its own investigation rather than having to wait until a complaint yes. is uh, is made. But that discussion about SIPO reforms, potential new legislation underpinning those new powers for SIPO has been going on for some time. Uh, Michael McGrath, who was, of course, public expenditure minister until just before Christmas, indicated that he, he conducted a fairly wide-ranging consultation on this and indicated that he was going to bring forward legislation. That now transfers, of course... Pascal Donovan, what Pascal Donovan said is that until his own issues are resolved with Zippo, he won't, uh, yeah, he, he will pass over responsibility uh, for it mm. uh, back, to, back to Michael McGrath. And, and I'm not sure really that Zippo would feel in any way constrained in its decisions or in its investigations because. Pascal Dunner was its nominal political master. Um, I, I think it'll it'll, mm. it'll pursue wherever the evidence leads us, I would imagine. You had a very interesting piece uh, yourself yesterday, a profile of the man who has emerged from all of this, I suppose. Many of us might have heard of him before, Michael, Michael Stone, a very successful, very wealthy uh, businessman uh, behind uh, this. Um, it's interesting. I mean, he, he resigned from the positions that he had, unpaid positions, but seemingly he was very effective in those. Yeah, I mean, I know a bit about Michael Stone, uh, Fran, because um, I, I have been interested in this um, initiative in the northeast inner city uh, in, in, in Dublin, which uh, your listeners w- would be aware of is, you know, one of the most deprived yeah. and troubled areas um, in, in, in the country, yeah, certainly in Dublin, but 
also in the country. And there was an, an initiative set up there um, after a series of gangland killings back there in 2017, set up by Enda Kenny. And um, I, I had heard some things about it. And I went down there a couple of times. I actually walked around uh, with Michael Stone for a piece that I did on um, on the sort of initiatives that, they, uh, that, that, that they're doing in... Mm conjunction with community groups there. I have to say, I mean, I've written about this a couple of times um, in the Irish Times. I was very impressed uh, with the the setup there. I was very impressed with Stone. Um, He's very much a guy, uh, very much a guy who is interested in results rather than process. And that's the whole ethos of the the board that he chairs down there. So it, it gets resources from government and when it wants to get things I'll give you one example so there there was a big problem with um with kids down there delivering drugs on mm. on bikes and yes. while there was a significant guard of presence down there you know they they you know they couldn't obviously keep up with the guys on bike uh, guys on bikes so um and so they they went to the guards and they said, you know, can can you uh, you know can you put a few guards on bikes down there to to more effectively uh, police this? And the guard said, oh yeah, sure, but you know we've got to go through this process and that process and getting them approved and all that sort of thing, and it's going to take some time. And soon these guys uh, said, no, we we'll get you the bikes. We've got a budget. We'll get you the bikes. If we get you a couple of bikes, can you put a couple of guards from Store Street on them? And the thing was done. Uh, uh, over the course of uh, of a few days, uh, and that's the sort of corner cutting and uh, I suppose you know results oriented approach that 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 he has brought. I, I suspect he is somebody who uh, is pretty impatient with people who are not performing. Um, I, I, I know he uh, I know he played hurling for Dublin. Mm. I, I, I'm not sure I'd have liked to have marked him, uh, to be honest, or have him marked him. He's from, he's from that area, isn't he? Of, uh, he's fr- yeah, he's yeah. from that area. He's, and um, and, and his, his company, which is now very successful international mechanic uh, uh, engineering company, which has worked on some very big projects, and still keeps a connection with there. He takes on apprentices from, from that area. And he devoted... The, to me, quite a, a deal of time to this role in the northeast inner city. He did it entirely voluntary, uh, voluntarily, took no payments for it. And you know, I, I mean, I make no, I mean, I make any judgment on mm. it, you know mm. his this this latest controversy. All I can tell you is, having seen it at first hand, I was quite uh, I was quite impressed with it. It seemed to me to be getting results and a lot of that seemed to me to be down to the work that Stone was putting in uh, voluntarily down there and I'm, you know, I'm afraid that he will probably be badly missed. Yes, uh, because you make the point, very private guy likes to go under the radar quite a bit but of course now he's he's in headlines everywhere, Pat, you know. Yeah, he is and I would say he, uh, I I would say he hates that but, you know, he, he very clearly you know, made some mistakes uh, in his support for uh, for Pascal Donoghue. And I guess he should have known that. He's a man of the world as mm. well, you know. Mm. And, uh, and you know, um, our 
our politics is, uh, in some respects, is highly regulated. Certainly our financing of politics is very highly regulated, mm. very highly scrutinised. And we all know why that is. Of course, and with very rules, good reason, yes. Yeah. All those rules that, you know, are maybe the bane of politicians' lives, we know why they're there. Yeah. We're there yeah. be- they're there because our politics was damaged and corrupted over many years by the influence of uh, of, of, of of money and um, and and that's why they're there. So they're there for good. They're there for good reason. And you know, I guess in the final analysis, Michael Stone should probably have known that, shouldn't he? Well, this is the thing, isn't it, uh, Pat? We always appreciate your time. I know how busy you are. Thank you for your time this morning, Pat. Thank you. Good My morning. Pleasure, good morning to you, Pat Leahy. There, political correspondent with the Irish Times, and covered extensively uh, all that we've uh, spoken about there in the Irish Times today, right across the, uh, the newspapers. In fact, eighteen hundred nine three eight double oh seven. Tip today with Fran Curry With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie Tip If it matters to you, it matters to us. Call Tip today on 1-800-938-007. Now, we were talking over the last uh, few days about uh, the protest at the weekend, uh, about uh, the state of the hospitals, particularly looking to uh, University Hospital uh, Limerick. And, of course, indeed, the uh, issue of reopening A&E in Nina and in Ennis. Well, Margaret joins me now. Margaret, good morning to you. Morning, friend. How are you? I'm very well indeed, Margaret. Great to talk to you today. Um, Your feelings on the hospital situation, Margaret? The feeling is uh, is dire. I know it is dire everywhere, but Nina should never have been downgraded. It should be the Nina should have stayed in Nina. I know it's going to be very hard to get it back up and going again, mm. and I hope it will. But it's ridiculous having to they put the cart before the horse when they they put the reconfiguration into Limerick. And they did that without having it ready, I suppose, to close down the the A and E and the other hospitals, Margaret. That's right. Yeah, yeah, they didn't set it up right. Yeah, I agree. You, I mean, you marched to keep services in Nina. What was the feeling around the town at that particular time? Uh, people were very, very much behind us because I was. I know I was very involved with this myself with the and the committee end of it. I was on it at the time. Mm. And there's a place a group who was doing it. We put an officer to work into it. I mean, people were were mad. You know, they, they, they came out and marched to train keepers. So that's the fact that it should be here in a big town. I mean, near motorways and everything else. And what was the great disappointment in the area then? I mean, what a great anger in the area when you uh, finally found out that A&E was no longer going to be in, Nina. There's great anger about it because you know because there's a lot of people that wouldn't have thrown me into Limerick, mm. you know, transport wise. You know that would just have no way of getting into Limerick if they had an accident or whatever. I mean, you know, the gambling services is there, but gambling services are not able to cope either. Yeah, and that's the other thing, Margaret, that's often uh, forgotten about that we were promised some sort of a super duper uh, paramedic ambulance setup uh, for North Tipperary at that point as well, but that doesn't seem to have materialised either. No, it doesn't, no, no. No, it didn't, no. 
And I don't and I don't blame the, the ambulance service because mm. they're trying to do their best. As well as the doctors and the nurses. I mean they're running off their fees. I don't blame the doctors and nurses for going out of this country. Do you not? No, I don't. And have you experience of the hospital service yourself, Margaret? Oh, I bet I have. That's different. The out of hours doctor now last Christmas, 12 months. Yeah. I had to ring Shannon Doc. I got no hop from the doctor at all. The, sh- the doctor was on. Put your feet. I had cellulite in my leg and I knew I needed. And he, ne- he never even asked me to go for the appointment. He gave no name, no nothing. The nurse and the receptionist were very good. I, ha- I ended up having to go into Limerick. It's the medical. I had to go. To, I, I should have gone over to the English units, Nina. Mm. But I must say, the doctor and the nurse that were there that day were most kind and good to me. Right. And even the doctor wrote out and wrote for Dimrick for me. I spent most of the day inside in the acute medical end within Dimrick. Only for a friend of mine took me in, I wouldn't have been able to get in. So you have experience of the difficulties there. I'm not sure. Did you hear Michael Lowry speak to me um, about this, uh, Margaret? I did, sir. Yeah, and he, he was making the point, and it's an interesting one in his own way, is that, OK, it's grand to say open up the NE in Nina, but the kind of resources that would need to be put into it, the staffing of it, I mean, yeah. where, where where the operating theatres are there, it's, it's kind of 1950s stuff. Um so it, it's not very simple to just turn around in the morning and say, we're opening up A&E and Nina. That's what, I mean, that's what I meant when I said that. It's going to be hard to start it up again. That's what I meant by that, Jack. Yes, yeah. Yes, yeah, it is. I agree. It's going to be very hard. And to get the staff. But it should be well. done as far as you're concerned. Exactly, it should be done. I well, mean, it is, I mean, they've done it. No, I mean, Sidorinus and Nina, no, two, two hospitals have all happened to go into Limerick. No, they, I mean, they didn't realise that it's going to be overcrowded. Mm. And and dangerous indeed, as we discovered exactly. as well. Yeah. yeah, exactly. All right, Margaret. Well, it was good to talk to you today and we wish you well. And thank you so much for coming on with me. That's Margaret speaking to us uh, today. 1800-938-007. Our updated designs on the N24 realignment were released on Monday in the Falls consult- uh, consultation, indeed, with homeowners and landowners along the affected route. The general consensus is that more clarity is needed. And uh, David Maloney from the N24 Road Facebook group uh, joins me now. David, good morning to you. Hello, Frank. And Frank, Thanks very much for having us. You, it's good you, that you um, publicise our concerns. And uh, great to talk to you, David. But I have to say, David, I'm rather confused. Um, I've looked at the maps. I've I've read all the blur by Canon. Where exactly, can, can you simplify this for me? Where are we now with the N24? Well, I mean, the big picture about the N24, Fran, is that Eamon Ryan, the minister, is completely against road jobs, right? He wants to see public um, um, transport prioritised, right, against roads. And I saw this in England years ago. The attitude was, if you build um, motorways, they only fill up in time, so don't build them, right? Mm -hmm. And see, but but, um, Eamon Ryan is all for a bypass around the town. Right. And he said he would be in favour of that because he knows uh, problems in the town, congestion and air mm. pollution and so on. Right. So, I mean, the logic, logical thing. T- I mean, what they're actually doing now is they're designing the whole lo- scheme and they're, going to, and they're going to go for planning permission. And there's a lot of issues, right? And you can see even up to date, I mean, the design is very poor and it's not progressing well at all, right? So my attitude, see, if, if they go for planning permission for the whole road, someone down care could successfully lodge 
um, an objection. And the whole road would be held up for 20 years, including the bypass around the town. So, I mean, I can't understand why they don't just concentrate on um, getting the bypass around the town done, first of all, right? Mm-hmm. All right so, because that's what everyone wants. And everyone that drives the road, that's what they want, right? The only people that are benefiting by designing the whole scheme is the designers with their fees, right? Right, and, and the, the whole job, I think. And this appears to be design on top of design, and you know it's going on and trundling on. And we would have seen other maps and other versions of this as yeah. well. Um, a, a couple of things on it, you might be able to help me with yes. the 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 refinement of the corridor to the hundred meter wide yes. corridor at this door. Will you explain that 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 was originally to be three hundred meters? I think was it. Well, see, what happened was they have a three hundred meter corridor anyway which is within which all properties are sterilised. So people cannot sell their properties because no one will buy them. No company will give, you, give a buyer a mortgage, right? Mm. Uh, um, farmers don't know what's happening. I mean, farmers are afraid to even to reseed their fields because they do not know whether the land is going to be taken off them or not, right? So, I mean, people are in a state of complete limbo, right? And this 100 metres, as I said, makes no difference to the, um, to the land that's in limbo. Right, so it gives no certainty to, to landowners. Oh, absolutely none at all, right? I mean, what it actually does, right? I mean, what they should have done is, I mean, I, I would have thought, right? I mean, since May, I would have expected to, to know that you'd have proper drawings. Not the, I mean, they haven't shown what the interchanges are going to look like, right? You know, I mean, we're really no wiser. And even, I mean, they have actually shown a kink on the road near Menard. Which means, in effect, I mean, you can't have a kink on a road, right? Because with a, a road, it's like a long railway track. You have to long, smooth bends so you can see people coming against you, right? So, and uh, as I said, the, the big thing is they haven't actually provided any, any details of where their interchanges will be, um, like at both sides of town. On the Limerick, Limerick Junction side, is it going to be near Limerick Junction? It seems they might build an interchange there, or is it going to be close to the town? But, right? but this is the thing. This, this is a work in progress, uh, seemingly. So, I mean, the detail you're looking for, we just don't have yet. Is that right? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, we haven't. And I would have expected it, right? You know, from working on road jobs and so on, right? Yeah. But they'd have a, they would have a schema. I mean, you don't have to design a bridge, right? But you have to just show you're going to put a bridge there. Do you follow me? You don't have to design the roundabout, but you have to show that you're going to put the uh, put the round. And is that not there. there at the moment? Is that not in the uh, map? No, no, none of that is there, right? You know. And I, I thought there was indications of of where where these were going to be. Uh, no, but I mean, they should have actually shown as you would expect, right? I mean, there was a time when they were talking about putting um, just uh, there'd be only three places where you could get on and off the road. Yes. One was at each side of Spurry Town and one down near Bancha, right? But I mean, I, I'm no wiser now because they've actually shown um, interchanges and you don't really know what the interchange shows, right? Is it an overbridge or is it a slip road off the main road? And see, another big issue, we still don't know, still haven't confirmed, is it going to be a dual carriageway or a single carriageway? Well, my understanding is it's going to be a single carriageway. Yeah, but see, the, the big problem with a single carriageway, we've seen it before, Fran, is, I mean, other sections of this road that were built, like on the north of Care, right? Yes. They built that as a single carriageway. They did the same thing down below in Piltown. Mm. And what happened? Within one year, they came along and they put up barriers up the middle of the road. Yes. Because there was head-on collisions and fatalities. Do you know what? So there was a, a major, I mean, concern with um, single carriageway roads. 
Will you help right. me with something else as well? Because it yes. says in the um, in the press release uh, about this design update number one, within Tipperary Town, new streets incorporating active travel infrastructure are proposed. What does that yeah, mean? Yeah, OK, that's another big issue. I mean, they're promoting active travel, which means giving people some place to walk and cycle. And I was saying that they want active travel, right? What they should do is what they're actually doing on the Cork to Limerick Road, right? Build uh, a separated... Um, cycle track and path along the road, right? I mean, that'd be a tremendous um, uh, economical right. value. To and that, that's not in the plan at all? Oh, not at all. I mean, uh, our politicians haven't even looked for it, right? Uh, and then the, the councillor saying, oh, we can't have a separated um, cycle track, right? I mean, people are going to cycle along the road anyway because they're saying of air pollution. But they don't seem to have any regard for building um, the road beside houses or housing estates if air pollution is a problem. Do you follow me? Yes, and God knows air pollution is a huge problem in, in Tipperary Town anyway. But uh, yes. the, the new streets, what does that mean? New streets in Cork? I know, in, in Tipperary Town, there's sort of two link roads within the town they're going to build, right? right. To okay. sort of get the traffic from um, the drum, drum side out to the, um, uh, the care road side. Right, OK. In terms of um, improving um, public transport, for instance, is, is there anything here that we should see? I mean, well, they're, they're telling us there would be a positive what impact. What we need on to it. see, right, and I've actually asked her, right, was they talked about improving the accessibility to the Limerick Junction yes. train station, right? And I asked them the basic question, right, because what they had ten, intended to do was put the road in the existing road. And so I said to them, OK, you come out to very town, you get onto a roundabout, you get onto a new road, but you cannot get off the new road until you get to Palace Green. So how do you get to Limerick Junction? I said, right? Or they said they hadn't thought that yet, right? You know, but what you need to see, I mean, if you want to improve um, um, public transport, improve the, I mean, there should be a roundabout near Limerick Junction so traffic can get off the road into Limerick Junction quickly. Where from here, David? Well, what's next? This is design update number one, so obviously more yeah. to come. So. No, what's actually happening is um, we're arranging a public meeting on Friday outside the civic offices at four o'clock, right? Mm. Because, see, the council have said, uh, they've told me before, right, more or less, that with the public design, they're only going to talk to the landowners, more or less to exclude me and the stakeholders, which you can't. That goes against the procedures, right? right? So I said, OK, we'll have our own meeting then outside the civic offices and we'll raise the issues, which we're actually doing at 4 o'clock on Friday afternoon and everyone is welcome, including the councillors. Because, uh, see, the problem I had too is I've raised issues, right, a whole list of issues which you have there, right? And I asked the councillors, I mean, there's, there's 11 of them locally, right, to bring it up at the meeting the other day. So none of them did it. Seem, I mean, it seems to be a case of the Emperor's Court. They seem to just all take what they're, what they're taught, right, without questioning any of the details. But see, again, they can't question the details because it'd be like me looking at a book of Chinese, right? I wouldn't know what I'm looking at or understand it. Do you think, so, David, though, at this stage that people are exhausted from this and really they want this to happen because any of us who sit in traffic in Tipperary Town, we we know the awfulness of it and, and the damage it's doing to it. So does it not, should it not just go ahead, trundle on, let's do this, you know, let's do yeah, it. Yeah, but they should, and they should just concentrate in Tipperary Town and get the bypass built around Tipperary Town. I mean, a few years ago, they built, um, uh, they rebuilt streets in Tipperary Town, they caused chaos and business that suffered at the Limerick end, right? Now they intend to do the same thing again uh, at the um, at the Cashel Road end. But and all the business people are saying, look, doing that work and spending three and four million, right, on that work is of no benefit because we still have all the traffic in and we're going to lose uh, a year and a half of trading. 
get the, so everyone is saying get the bypass built first. Uh-huh. So I mean the emphasis should be bypass first. All right, uh, David, good to talk to you and thank yep. you for your time this morning. Thank okay, you. thank you very good, much. Good morning to you, David. That's uh, David Maloney there from the N24 Road Facebook group, uh, 1800-938-007. Tip today with Fran Curry With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or ie. We can. And there you are, that frightened the hell out of our news team this morning, I'm sure. But of course, we were left out at uh, top of the hour. Now, we heard from uh, Margaret a little bit uh, earlier on, and uh, she gave us her views about uh, the AE in uh, Nina or lack of. Indeed, Paul joins me now. Paul, good morning to you. Good morning, Fran. Uh, good to talk to you today. You were listening to, to Margaret uh, this morning, Paul. What did you make of that? I caught the truth. It's uh, what the Americans call a cluster. Mm. Basically, it's completely fucked up. And I I sent in a WhatsApp. Basically, every county should have a hospital, a major hospital with an A and E in it. Every county, and the bigger county should have at least two. And the only thing that goes against, you know, the the theory of the, um, the centre of excellence and all of that, that we were all sold some years ago, Paul, do you think it's time to just disband that notion now? Absolutely. Because it I hasn't mean, worked, is that it? Basically, yes. I mean, it's ridiculous that if you live in Nina and uh, at 5 8 you have a heart attack going to the A&E or whatever they have there. At 5 past, you're going to Limerick. And Limerick can't deal with you. Because, well, you could be there for God knows how long. Yeah, yeah. You know, like I fully appreciate Dublin has three hospitals with A&Es. Mm-hmm. But it has the population to justify it. But does the rest of the country not qualify? Yeah, and I mean, you know, as I say, we were all sold to pop about the notion of the centre of excellence, but then, yeah. then uh, the hospital in Limerick was not ready, and you know, it couldn't couldn't cope with the kind of demand that was put upon it. Well, there's a serious tendency in this country to, if it's new, it's better. Yeah, you know, the truth is, every county needs a hospital, and as I say, if it's a big county, it needs two. So Cork should have two. Tipperary. Well, and, and when you say a hospital, are you saying an A&E unit in a hospital? A hospital capable of dealing with an, uh, having an A&E unit and having the hospital facilities to, that, that the A&E can feed into. Yes. And, and, and another thing that might help too, and I, I know they've banded this one around for years, is they need uh, step-down beds. Yes, yeah. Because, I mean, I know well, I, lived, I, I moved down here to... I live in Boris Nostry. I lived down here... 15 years ago, mm. and my mother was in hospital in, in Blackstown for 15, well, for six months because uh, they, we weren't ready to take her home, but she didn't have a step down bed, so she was occupying an acute bed. She wasn't sick, but she was. We, we weren't capable of taking care of her because we had to have things, uh, house built and of course, occupation yes. set up. But I mean, if, if they had, for want of a better phrase, a dormitory ward. People like in, in the mother situation could have had the care they needed, and that bed would have been there for uh, A and E. And instead, we're closing facilities that could provide that service. And That's I'm thinking it. of St Bridget's in in Carrick and Shore is the perfect example of that. Yeah, I mean, at the end of 
they, uh, they, they don't, obviously they, they step down bed don't need quite the same amount of, of, of staffing and care as an acute bed does. But I mean, at the end of the day, if we pay our doctors and we pay our nurses, they stay. You know. Do you do you think it's all about money at the end of the day? Well, I, I, it's part of it. I mean, at the end of the day, if you work in a coal mine, you get paid a coal miner's wages. So yes. if you're going to be in a job where you take abuse, your pay packet has to, has to reflect that. Like, I was in the matter of 40 years ago. I had a row with a stolen car and I broke my leg. And the nurses got abuse off the patients and off the staff nurses and off the doctors and off the, off the registrars and off the consultants and off the visitors. Rubbish being thrown all over the place. So they were treated really badly, Paul. Is that what yes, you're saying to me? that's yeah. exactly it. Uh, and while my mother was in the, the Blanchetown Hospital, she, like she was near 80, she filled a glass of water in herself. It took me an hour to find a nurse to change her in her nightdress. My God. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not blaming the nurses. Mm. They, they were up to their necks in, in paperwork. Mm. You know, so they weren't doing, they, weren't, they hadn't tried to do nurse work, they were doing paperwork. Uh, root branch need, needs to be taken care of. I think basically we need to go back to the health boards and let, let each area be responsible for itself. Now, obviously, you have to have a, a, an over an overwatch, but the HSE is a self-perpetuating organism. Yeah, and I mean, you know, even today in the newspapers, we're hearing about you know people within the HSE that don't particularly want change. You know, a former head of the HSE saying that, you know, there was an attempt to digitalise the whole thing, to go away from this writing stuff on, 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 on pieces of paper and stuff. But that, that there, there's people in there who, who will impede change in some way, Paul. Oh, God, yes. But I, I will say in fairness, that applies to any... Uh, and I, I use the, 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 the idea loosely, any government body or any yes. large body. Because... Uh, if somebody starts asking questions, you wouldn't know what answers might arrive. Right. So you know, yeah. So they don't want people poking around in in, in the, No. Yeah. Yeah. Like I say, there was a classic example a few years back. Uh, a young fellow was found dead in a ditch in Meath, and he, he had he had been he'd been in the HSE care system, and questions were being asked. And I think uh, the doll, the minister, said that he wanted to find out what was going on. Mm. And uh, requests were made to the HSE for the the, 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 the child's record. And they were told to feck off and mind their own business. They had nothing to do with them. This, well, this was HSE business. Well, I'm sure it was put an awful lot better than that, but I oh, take I take your point. That was, that was the gist of it, yeah. that the, the minister had no business questioning the HSE. So is it a case that they're a law unto themselves, as far as you're concerned? That they case? are. They yeah. are. Money is being poured into the health system, but a lot of it's going into the HSE as opposed to going into hospital beds and into doctors and nurses and that kind of thing. I and mean, it, it, and it, does it look to you as if the department even has no jurisdiction over it, really? It seems that way. You know, it, 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 it's, it, it, it's a self-generating problem. All right. Uh, really and good. I th- think the problem really needs, uh, what you need is someone to, uh, what was it, a... Uh, President Truman hit a, 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 a little note on his desk that said the, the, the buck stops, stops here. here. Indeed, he did, yeah. There has to be someone responsible. So where does the buck stop, I suppose, is the question you're posing then? Well, ultimately, I think it, it's up to the... Whoever the Minister of Health is, now he'll, he'll have to have a brass neck 
Yeah. But he'll, he'll have to he'll have to take on the line in his end and then say, look at yeah. the, the HSE. Has to be sorted. The buck stops with me. Uh, wouldn't it be yeah. interesting to hear a minister say that? Paul, a real pleasure to talk to you today and thank you for your time. That's uh, Paul. Let's go back to the very confusing situation with the N24 and Pat joins me now. Pat, good morning to you. Morning, friend. Good to talk to you today. Pat, are you are you sort of up to speed on what's happening, if you'll forgive the dreadful pun? I'm not up to speed, but like the caller that was on there earlier just has an idea of uh, the design of this road, that there should be uh, roundabouts and there should be this and that often to facilitate the likes of Limerick Junction. Mm. Now, to get an understanding and to, foc- uh, to help the group to focus on, the whole purpose of this uh, bypass is that the study that the council would have done, they would have possibly come up with that 90% roughly, and this is not a, 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 an accurate figure, that 90% of the traffic flowing through Tipperary Town are not stopping at Limerick Junction, not stopping at Monaird and all this. They're going directly to Limerick. So the purpose of this bypass is to facilitate that uh, fast movement of that traffic and to, get, to uh, facilitate it taken away from Tipperary Town. Mm. Now, what you will find then is like the plan for care, that it will enhance the town, the fact that you have for instance, 90% of that traffic gone away. And what they are saying is, for the other 10% that wish to go to Limerick Junction and Monaird, you go to Tipperary, but that trickle, and that's why the roads, that the other roads they have designed in this plan is to, that small trickle of, of, of mm. stuff is to go. But the main uh, thing of this plan is to facilitate safety first of all, but as I said, just to gear all that traffic away from Tipperary. Yes, but, but slipways to to other areas would not impede traffic really all that much, would it? Well, you see how it worked there even outside Keogh. You have the main thoroughfare to Cork, so you have most of the traffic going to Cork yes. right along there. And if you wish to go to Ballyluby or Burncourt, you, you you have a facility outside care to go, and that's I think the, the the nuts and bolts of the plan that they have designed for the likes of that thing in Tipperary. Right? Did you get a chance to have a look at this? I Pat? didn't get a Did chance no, because okay. there's there's a couple of there's a lot of things going on, and what's going on as well is even for that um, motorway from water to Limerick, they're looking at do they actually need that? Mm. And why they're looking at do they actually need that? And this is the thing that I have been uh, pushing as well, is that an awful lot of the uh, uh, traffic even going to Tipperary or HGV, what I am proposing and what I have been working on with the last year is that an awful lot of this uh, stuff should go back to the old days. It should be moved by rail. Mm. And the money that we're going to spend on the upgrade of this road that I feel is not needed, the one from Water to Limerick, that money would go into uh, uh, upgrading our rail, putting electric trains, and we have a cleaner and mm. more efficient way of moving goods. And this is the way it was done years ago. And this, I, I believe, but the likes of the thing for Tipperary, there will be need for the likes of bypassing towns and whatever, for, for cars and whatever. 
But the bulk of this uh, real thing is that HGVs would be taken off the road. So all the main congestion in Tipperary would be reduced if we went down the road of rail and start moving goods by rail. Right. And would you not upgrade the... And let's leave the bypass out of it now for a moment. Would you not upgrade the N24 at all? I believe we're going backward in a lot of this, even in town planning and whatever. We're we're not seeing a more cleaner, a more future-proof system. We're spending major money on all these roads that I feel are not needed. If we so you, you're in agreement with Eamon Ryan, largely. Though. I am basically part of my thing. I have been on Zoom meetings. I am feeding this with this stuff, kind of stuff to them, is we need... You have, for instance, a train coming up from Cork in the morning with X amount of carriages for people. I believe that that train should have 20 or 30 uh, freight carriages, and I believe we should have more regular services. We might have, say, for instance, the one coming from Waterford to Limerick Junction. We might have one at 8 o'clock in the morning geared for commuters. We might have another one at, at 9 o'clock with, uh, with cargo. So what we would have is more regular services the fact that we're using rail more and this is the plan we And, need and to a lot towards. of people would agree with you where that is concerned, but should the timetable at the moment is a pure joke, you know? Well if we if we get this plan that I'm talking about working that yes. we have rail so say the nine o'clock might might have only one carriage for passengers and it might have twenty carriages with cargo, but the next one could have ten carriages for so we'll have Basically, every hour we could have rail services, and this is the overall. But a huge, a huge investment will be needed in rail. A huge investment that I feel the investment would be better in that than the road that's not needed from Water to Limerick. All right, Pat. uh, Thought provoking as ever. Thank you for your time this morning. It's tip today with Fran Curry with Slattery's Garage. Puck on your Peugeot car or van might benefit from a free software upgrade. For more information and to find out. this applies to your vehicle. Call the lads in Slattery's Garage Puck On on 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie. Gurmila Mahagat Pat, uh, welcome back to the second hour of uh, Tip Today, 1800 938 007. That's a free phone number. It won't cost you anything if you want to call uh, Emma. You can text and WhatsApp 083 311 You can leave us a, a voice note on WhatsApp as well if you want to, to uh, have your say on anything that we're uh, discussing this morning or indeed if you want to bring up something uh, brand new as well. You can uh, email Tip Today at uh, tipfm.com. Now, a complete alcohol ban is due to come into effect in Ballinaz Riverside Park when our reporter, Alison Highland, is there for us. Now, Ellie, good morning to you. Good morning, friends. Sorry about earlier. We had to go back to the old trusty phone. Ah, you can't beat it, Ellie. We were going to go with smoke signals there for a while, but look, we're (laughs) delighted to hear you anyway. Can you tell us the background to this, Ellie? Yeah, sure. Well, I'm here this morning at the beautiful Riverside Park in Ballina. Now, the weather isn't amazing, but it certainly doesn't take away from the beauty of this area and this park. A hugely popular amenity, not just with local people, uh, but also with tourists and day trippers and people from across the country who come in their droves here. Now, I'm joined here by Councillor Phil Bugler, and Councillor Bugler was the one who um, fought for this ban on alcohol. And Councillor Bugler, if I could ask you, first of all, why such a drastic measure? Well, Ali, you know, first of all, I will say, you know, as you can see yourself, Ballina is a wonderful place. It's on the shores of Loch Derg, you know, where, like the Cossadel Sol. So, 
and I'm really proud of the people in Ballina, but for the last two years, the level of antisocial behaviour on the pontoon, which you can clearly see here, and our toilet block stroke shower unit has been extensive. I'll just go into details. Last year in 22, during the summer months, the wash hand basins and the toilets and all the windows were broken in our shower and toilet block. Now, this cost us at least 20,000 euros. Also, it's costing us nine hours with the Gardaí. Don't get me wrong. We want people to come to Ballina. We want everyone to come and enjoy this beautiful amenity. Swim in Loch Derg, you know, take a, take, to take rowing, take stand-up paddle, do kayaking. But my message to everyone is you've got to respect the amenities that we have. That's so in conjunction with the Gardaí, and we've worked with them closely for the last, I suppose, well, particularly in the last two years. And we want a complete alcohol ban because we feel that the consumption of alcohol during the summer months is leading to a lot of vandalism in our park. Do you feel it's being done by people locally or by people coming into the town? Well, certainly the vandalism is more extensive during the summer months. And I'll just explain to you, Ali. We have a bus coming from Limerick, the 323, which leaves Limerick City into Bird Hill, then onto Ballina, Port through and back into Nina. Previously, this bus used to bypass Ballina, it used to go straight from Limerick, Bird Hill, Nina. Now, this bus comes out, it brings a lot of youths out here during the summer months. Now, we welcome the youth, but you'll have to leave your crates of beer behind you this time. We welcome you out, but you'll have to respect our amenities here. We welcome everyone in Ballina. We're a tourist destination. We want to be like Killarney, you know, but we've got to look after and protect the amenities that we have here. And vandalism of this nature is not going to be tolerated. But the alcohol ban in, will, be, will, be, will be strictly enforced by the Gardaí, and that will give the Gardaí a chance to confiscate all these crates of alcohol that are brought, being brought into Ballina. I don't want to stop anyone drinking a glass of wine or having a beer with a picnic in Ballina. But unfortunately, the vandalism has gone to such an extent that we had to, we had to consider you know, having this bylaw on alcohol in every, in every millimetre of grass in this park. And, friend, just to paint a picture for you, we're standing outside the shower block and pilot block here, Ballina, in the Riverside Park at the moment. A relatively new building, Councillor Burger. When was this built? I'd say about um, 2010. 2010. And it looks like it was built last year. It looks brand new. But every window I'm looking at in the block is smashed. Oh, open. my God. Uh, there was also what you can see, the remains of maybe a fire in a couple of corners of it. There's scratches and marks on the doors. It looks like a couple of the toilet doors, uh, which aren't open 24-7, but it looks like they've been um, kicked in or an attempt has been made anyway to kick them in. So really extensive damage here, Councillor Phil Bugler. But as you said, I know in, in principle it's a great idea and hopefully in practice it will also be good. But Guard the Resources, that's a huge issue nationwide. And can you, is it fair to expect the Gardaí to be able to police this when resources are already quite stretched? Well, I'd just like to say that the Gardaí in Killaloo, and I will particularly name Sergeant Jeanette Ryan and our Inspector Michelle Maloney, have just been outstanding in the last two years, especially since the volume of young people coming into Ballina. They've just been outstanding. I've worked closely with the Gardaí and the Inspector. They have called for this ban. That if they have this bylaw in place, they will be able to confiscate the beer before anyone consumes it. They, they have been just tremendous in the last two years. 
They even have a key of our Riverside Park that they can get over here quickly. They've just been outstanding, and we've worked very, very close with them. But this, this bylaw will give the guardie power to confiscate any craze of alcohol that's brought into Ballina Riverside Park. You were telling me as well before we came on air, this problem isn't just um, concerning the, the park, but it's also, you have to lock up the church early as well because it's the same kind of problem. Well, last year, I suppose, you know, um, the local police came to me um, and, uh, yes, the youth uh, were waiting for the bus, which had bus stops seems to be opposite the church. They've gone into the church, sat down in the pews and, you know, the police feel it's disrespectful. They put their feet up in the pews. They plug their phones in. And the police have said to them, this is not a bus shelter. So, yes, it is causing other problems. It is causing problems when these youths come out from Limerick. As I said, we don't have a guard station in Killaloo. So they're going into some of the shops on the main street and they're intimidating people and sometimes, you know, robbing streets and things like that. It might think that they're small items, but they're not. And if you have one woman standing behind the counter, she can't control 10 or 12 people coming into her, her shop. So really, I say to anyone coming to Ballinard, the message is we want to come in. We love the football. We have a great player place here. We're a tourist town, but you'll have to respect what we have here. What's been the support locally then to us? Well, I think yeah, people would support it very much. I think, you know, um, um, we have lovely, lovely pubs and restaurants in the town here. You know, we're not stopping anyone going, going drinking. But you cannot drink, you will not be able to drink in Ballina, Riverside Park, drink alcohol. Mm-hmm. You'll have to drink alcohol-free or wine or beer. It's, which feels that becomes the level of consumption of alcohol is leading to the vandalism in Ballina Park. So we have to take action. So the bylaws will go on public display for one month. The public are allowed to make submissions. They will be brought back then to the municipal, and then they will be voted on. So the, the ban itself isn't in effect as of now, but when are you hoping it will be in effect? Well, hopefully in the next, in the next, in the month, they'll be out on public display. Then we have to look at the submissions. So I suppose in two months. But once we have it in place for, you know, April, May, I'll be very happy. Yeah. Do you think it's something that maybe a lot of other councils around the country will start looking at Ballina and saying that that's a good idea? We need to bring that in here. Well, I think they have it already in other parts. They used to have it in the Phoenix Park, I suppose, before COVID. I, I'm nearly certain they have it in Kilkenny, in Kilkenny Castle and Park. Yes, I, I think they have it in they have it in, in London in loads of places. Look, at, nobody wants to stop anyone drinking a glass of wine or a glass of beer. But if it's extensive drinking, consumption of alcohol, and it's leading to vandalism, well, we have to take action. Could I ask you as well, just before we finish up, to be remiss of me, I think, to come to Ballina and not ask you about the bridge. How's the bridge going? The bridge is going just fantastic. And I'm so proud of all the work that we've done since 2004, all the meetings that we've held, and, you know, regarding this bridge. I mean, for us to be able to bring this piece of infrastructure into Ballina, Killaloo, is just, it's just amazing. And I must say thanks to all the locals. They're with us on the R494. We will have some potholes. But the county council will be uh, maintaining this road for the next year and a half before we hand it over to the contractor. So bear with us. If you have any problems, please send me a quick text or uh, give me a quick call. We have a maintenance team, our engineer. We will look after this road until it's taken over by the contractor. But you will have a wonderful piece of infrastructure when this when the R494 is upgraded and, of course, our new bridge crossing, a new Shannon crossing. We're so proud of all the people who have been involved in this right from the start. And I want to mention one guy, Kieran Callan, who was an engineer with the county council who's since retired, who's actually 
fantastic in negotiating some of the problem areas negotiations that I needed to, to engage in. So yeah, thank you, Kieran, and also to Marcus O'Connor and all the staff of the County Council. They've just been fantastic in bringing this project to fruition. Okay, I know you were saying to me as well, the contractors might not want to see archaeological finds, but you're certainly maybe hopeful to find some. Yes, we have some. We have an archaeology team out at the moment in the in the area. Yes, we're hoping that they'll find, you know, some treasures maybe from the Shannon before it was flooded by in Arnacosha, I suppose, about 1928. Yes, they're digging. We hope they find something substantial. Wouldn't it be a great boost? Because mm -hmm. Ballina is a heritage town. Yes, we have a big population here of 3,500. And, you know, we've lost the shops and restaurants, but we certainly want to keep on to our heritage here. And we had an old oratory on the Shannon. It's just below the Riverside Park. And the people of Ballina took it stone by stone and transported it over to Killaloo, to the Catholic Church in Killaloo. So there's lovely stories about the heritage in Ballina. And there's many books written on it. We did a historical trail ourselves back in 2006 from Tiny Towns. And, um, and I want to thank the Tally Towns group as well in Ballina and Bohor, who've been fantastic in helping us here with heritage and also with the, the litter pigs in Ballina. Okay, thanks for that, Councillor Bugler. So from uh, from here at the, the Riverside Park in Ballina, Fran, it's back to you, and we'd welcome you any time up here, but you have to remember, leave the wine at home. <laughs> thanks, Ali. You know me too well. That's our reporter, Ali. Uh, speaking there to Councillor Phil Bugler in lovely Ballina, a beautiful, beautiful part of the country that I'm very fond of indeed. Uh, listen around to tell us uh, Tipperary Town bylaws in the process of being strengthened to, to combat unlawful drinking in public places and more details to follow. I'm hearing there this morning uh, as well. I thought there were laws in place anyway uh, about uh, drinking in public, but um, obviously, obviously not. I need to find out a little bit more about that. Now, at the top of the programme, we spoke to the Irish Times uh, journalist, uh, Pat Leahy, about the Minister for Public Expenditure, Pat uh, Pascal Donoghue, as you know, at this stage, he has admitted to a breach in electoral rules by receiving that uh, donation in 2020 that exceeded the strict limits imposed by the law and that on top of the announcement last week about the um, the donations in 2016 as well. Mick joins me now. Mick, good morning to you. Hey, good morning, sir. And lovely to talk to you, Mick. Um, do you think, is there a line drawn under this? Now, is this, is this finished now, do you think? Oh, that's so they started. Do you think? Yeah. Uh, these politicians, they never learn from previous experiences, adult experiences and whatever. Uh, I, uh, only five investigative journalists in this country, nothing would ever uh, show up. Uh, and we, uh, we're always cribbing about uh, journalists, oh, they're digging up the dirt. Only five we had them down through the years, nothing would ever be known about Charlie, Holly, Ray Buck, Frank Dunlap, or any of that crowd. A lot of Pascal Dunhu's supporters are saying, though, that, you know, this is just a storm in a teacup. We're talking about a few hundred euro here, and for it to be lumped in with the some of the examples you're giving uh, is just not fair, Mick. What, what do you make of that? Well, I remember a time when Ray Buckler did his adorn, and he says, I have done nothing wrong, and I mm. am now drawing... Do you remember he said yeah, his drawing a line under, yeah. Drawing the line in the stand. Yeah. He said, that I'll take them all out from here on out. That's so long, long afterwards, he, was, he spent nearly six months in jail. And, and the same guy was going into pubs in Dublin, which he's walking around, buddy, as he called it. He used to ten grand in his pocket for walking around, buddy. Right. But, so, he could, so he could go into the pubs and, and buy votes and whatever. Right. But the 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 limits now that has 
been imposed by law, I mean, that was to combat all of that kind of thing that we had to live through back in the, the 1980s and stuff. So, you know, what this this guy's a great media performer. I mean, he's reputedly a, a great minister. He, he's recognised in Europe and he's... he's 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 a, a very capable guy, seemingly. So well, I can tell you though, with the kind of money that's going into the the coffers with uh, corporation uh, uh, tax and all that, uh, we had a surplus of five billion there mm. the other day, if you remember. So anybody could be could be a minister for finance when you have that kind of money coming in. Right. So he's going on all the time about the prudent management of the the coffers. You you don't you don't go along with that, do you? Well, I can tell you, if the corporation tax ever uh, dries up, I tell you what, he would be in some trouble. Yeah. But anyway, getting back to the other thing, uh, he's now blaming his benefactor uh, who, who resigned. Yeah, Michael uh, Stone. He shifted the blame over to him now. Mm. You well, know, well so. uh, Michael Stone seems to have taken on uh, the culpability himself, saying that, you know, he didn't disclose um, what he did for... Yeah, he's probably tried to save uh, I don't know who's behind, I suppose, if had a point like that, you know? Yeah. And, and uh, you know, Donoghue uh, himself is, is responsible for the standards of public uh, office. Mm. Uh, it's it's under his portfolio now, yeah. Yeah, and it's amazing that a guy that's, that's part of his portfolio that he doesn't know the rules himself, like. You see, it's not, it's not just the amount of money. The, the amount of money is probably small enough. It's, the, it, it's why do people uh, contribute to political parties? Hmm. I know that uh, your man is supposed to be a member of Fianna Fáil, Stoad. Why have you contributed to a Fianna Gael uh, minister's uh, election? Uh, well, seemingly he had great personal time and admiration for Pascal Donoghue. Well, don't say that. No problem, Mick. No bother. Uh, no problem at all, Mick. No problem at all. So you you were saying about Michael Stone. I mean, he admitted that he had great personal time for Pascal Donoghue and he admired his his work. And yeah, well, I, I appreciate this. If you were if you were a member of Fianna Fáil, would you make a contribution in an extra time to a Fianna Gael ministry? So what wh- what are you making of this then? Uh, well, you know, you scratch my back and I scratch yours. That's the name of the game. Between business and politics, the two were interlinked here uh, for, for, for too long. Since the foundation of the state, stroke politics was alive and well, and it's still alive and well. And, and to play devil's advocate on a, on this, I mean, if Pascal Donoghue is in the middle of a canvassing and a, a general election, all of that kind of thing, should he be expected to know the fine details of somebody putting up his bolsters? Absolutely. You think Absolutely. he should? Yeah. If you were even if you're running for the local elections, mm. and uh, a couple of lads came around and said, uh, you know, Fred, uh, we'll give you a little hand out there. We don't need anything for it, and we have step ladders, and we have this, and, uh, and they did all that for you. They do that out of the goodness of their hearts. Mm. They're not doing it for reward. Mm. So when money is exchanging hands, it has to be accounted for, and if, it, if, it's, if it's passed over to a minister, I mean, it could be hard. That's what the man's got for hanging up the posters. Uh, so the revenue could come after for tax at that time. Yes. If, you know, if, if you were to be serious about it. Yes. You know? So, you think we haven't heard the, the last of it, Mike? Oh, God, no. no, no. So when, when you're, when you're apologising and, and explaining, you're losing. It's as simple as that. Yeah. Did you think that Leo Radkar's... Um, uh, statement was rather watery. He said it comes down to whether you believe him or not, and I do believe him. But I, I, I thought I was, it was a kind I, of a strange thing to say. I was looking at Brad Kerr's face yesterday, and I'll tell you one thing. 
if ever if ever he, uh, you saw a fella that is getting the, the knife sharpened, he had a face on him like thunder. He didn't want. He's only a couple of days back in the in the, in the t-shirts uh, job, and I'd say this is the last thing that he ever wanted to have surfaced on, on, on top of everything else. Yeah, because it seems to be damaging the party, I would imagine, at this point. You know? Yeah, but I mean, it, 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 politicians, if they only looked across the water at the moment and see what's going on over there, like the corruption and the sleaze. Mm-hmm. And it's ironic that there's a former chancellor of the Exchequer who's effectively the Minister of Finance. For finance he's yeah. embroiled in a, in a big controversy over there. Yeah. And there we have a, a Minister of Finance here embroiled in the same thing. Yeah, and of course, the, the, the former... Uh, PM over there, back in hot water again, Mr. Johnson. But uh, oh, sure, I mean, what can you say about him? Like he's he nearly worse than Trump. Right. You know? So more to come is what you're saying to me, Mick. Oh, yeah, and, uh, and, and, you know, and there's there's no point in Chicago up on their high horses either, like, because. Mm. Uh, when they get into power I'm sure there'll be a lot of stuff will come up with them as well Well there's a very interesting piece if you get time to look at it in the Irish Times today from Michael McDowell and uh, he, he's, he's having a right go at Sinn Féin and uh, it's certainly a, an entertaining read if nothing else uh, Mick look after yourself and thanks very much indeed well, Just before I go there I yeah. read that the independent that uh, Sinn Féin uh, hired out uh, a place in Dublin and forgot to pay the advice from the higher alert during the election campaign that's on the independent today. Yeah. I just slipped their mind, mate. I just slipped their mind, as, as it should, like, you know. <laughs> it, seems, it seems to be a thing with politicians, is it? It's kind of a, a memory slip that, that happens yeah, once you, you get... Yeah, you have to wonder how they're able to do anything at all. That's a memory, like, you know. Oh, you old cynic, you. Mick, <laughs> Mick thanks very much. Gareen Bye-bye, you know. That's Mick speaking to us this morning. 1800 938 Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecan, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecan, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie Tip Today with Fran Curry With Slattery's Garage Pecan, you can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie Now, I am fascinated by the next uh, item because making and receiving phone calls is a big, big issue for me because I'm always afraid that they'll go on for half an hour and I'll be sort of, I should be doing something else and I'll be late and all. But anyway, people who received brief phone calls a few times a week reported feeling less lonely and anxious compared to those who didn't. That's according to a brand new story. And it claims that eight minutes is the optimum time for a phone call. I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Brendan Kelly, who's a professor of psychiatry at Trinity College in Dublin and also uh, an author. Good morning to you, Brendan. Good morning, Fran. And thank you so much for your time today because, as I say, I'm really, really taken with this. Eight minutes, it's very specific. What is the reasoning behind that? Well, this story is based on a research study that came out in 2021 from Texas where they they took 240 people and some of them received phone calls um, each day for a week and then a few times a week for a further three weeks and some of them received no such phone calls. Now, what happened was those who got the phone calls, which were general check-ins, you know, Mm. chats, 
from mm. someone you wouldn't know, someone you don't know, a researcher, just seeing how are things going. Um, those who received the calls, uh, you know, five calls in week one, they wanted more of them. And they opted, most opted to continue to receive five calls a week for the, for the following three weeks. And then at the end of the period, those who were getting the calls reported um, less loneliness um, and less uh, by way of anxiety and less by way of depressive symptoms compared to the people who did not receive uh, what they're calling empathy-oriented telephone calls. Um, and the calls were uh, kind of, they, they could go on a bit, but uh, they were aimed to be around the 10-minute mark. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that eight minutes tends to be uh, the optimal period uh, for a phone call to last uh, for both parties to emerge feeling uh, feeling better about the thing. It's very interesting. And I think you would be far more inclined to make that phone call if you knew it was only going to last eight minutes. Well, you see, that's very true because there was another piece of very interesting research last year as well. And, and this, this came from Harvard and this was about conversations. Now, not just telephone conversations, but, mm. you know, uh, conversations. And they showed that pretty much no conversations end when people want them to. Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> there's a problem that we... we Firstly, people entering conversations, as you hinted at the start of the item, Fran, we have, we have differing desires. Some people might want a long one and some people a short one. And we are unable to figure out what the other person wants. And this applies to all conversations, including phone conversations, that we want different things. And we're actually no good at figuring out what the other person wants um, at all. Do we set up the notion that we're going to have an eight minute conversation? I mean, do we do we put that in at the top? Look, this is and, and if so, is that not sort of cold and is that difficult? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it feels a bit non-spontaneous. Yes. Um, but if the alternative is not having a conversation at all, then um, perhaps it, it's a good thing. Um, I guess we're not very explicit about our um, sort of relational needs. Um, maybe particularly in Ireland, we tend to, uh, you know, hide it. So, mm. you know, in a phone call, when you're trying to wind it up a little yes. bit, we, 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 I, I don't you might be doing so now, Fran, I don't know. Um, <laughs> never, never. <laughs> but we do, we, we conceal it. We, we, you know, we say things like, you know, well, anyway, um, or, or we try and put it on the other person. You know, I might say, listen, listen, Fran, I won't keep you. Um, <laughs> as, as, as if I'm trying to end it. So, so maybe if after, after this, this item, Fran, you were to go and text someone that you haven't been in touch with and say, hello, can I schedule an eight minute phone call with you, please? Um, you know, the first thing that would happen is the person would laugh and they would would think it was a bit odd, yes. um, but they would respond in a warm way. It w would intrigue you. And as you say, the eight-minute limit does make it quite attractive. It's very good. I'm just thinking, uh, Emma, who produces for, for me here, uh, her one is, go on away then. <laughs> which, which, you know, works for her, but I, I just wonder about it at, at, at times. I think it's a brilliant notion altogether, but do you think that there's a possibility then that we could all get used to the idea that a phone call is is brief yeah and i that would be so helpful because there is a 
tendency to avoid phoning now for the reason you describe yeah. or maybe to text instead. We've lots of ways to dodge the phone call. And yet hearing, you know, hearing someone's voice is, is, is better in significant ways than simply texting. And um, so we do need this midpoint between sending, sending text messages and uh, on the other hand, say, meeting someone and chatting with them for a couple of hours. That's quite a different thing. And maybe the eight minute phone call is a very good, workable, non-threatening midpoint between those two ways of communication. Right. And as you say, the serious aspect of this is that it can help people out. And, uh, you know, particularly somebody who's isolated and alone, maybe that makes them feel feel important and feel wanted. Yeah, and it makes it, it 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 genuinely connects connects people up. I mean, our relationship needs are sometimes complex, but they're also sometimes really, really simple and easy to fulfil. And something like this helps both parties, and as a result, helps everybody. And just just finally moving away from it a little bit for a moment, but I'm just wondering about the ability of younger people to make a call in the first place, because it seems to be all text at this point. It is. I mean, a great deal of it is text. And I heard someone say that to telephone without texting first is an act of aggression. Wow. Um, I, I know that's very harsh, isn't wow. it? And uh, certainly not not where I come from. But 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 we, so, so maybe this will help us move back to valuing the, the phone call, value hearing somebody's voice, because it, it's a different kind of connection. I mean, with texting, there can be, you know, a time lag of 20 or 30 minutes between responses and for very good reasons. But the phone call is just that little bit more committed, that little bit more engaged, that little bit more personal. And I think it's something that we all need and that we should value more, even if it means you sending a mildly embarrassing text message after this, Fran, trying to schedule an eight minute phone call with an old friend. I bet I bet they would respond well to it. I'll bet they would. Would indeed. Can I get a, a free consultation from you as a psychiatrist, if you wouldn't mind, Brandon? I, I have a serious problem either making or answering the phone. I mean, it's, it's really, I have to work very hard to pick up and answer that. Is, is that a common thing? Yes, it is a common thing. And I mean, you know, I think a lot a lot of people feel like that. And you see various gradations. For example, you find some people only answering numbers that they recognise yes. on their phones. And there can be safety reasons for that, particularly with younger people. Um, but on the other hand, it does remove some of, the, some of the magic. And indeed, I know somebody who now only answers unknown numbers because they're so tired of everybody that they know. And they can predict the content of every conversation yes. and its duration that they're only interested in the unknown. But there is an anxiety about phone calls and you can certainly book a consultation with me, Fran, but it'll be over the phone and it'll be eight minutes long. <laughs> Go on away now. <laughs> <laughs> Professor Kelly, thank you so much for your time this morning. Thank right, you thanks. and bye-bye to now. Professor Brendan Kelly there, who is Professor of Psychiatry at uh, Trinity in Dublin. He's author of several books, including In Search of Madness. And there's one I, I have to get hold of. 1800 if it matters to you, it matters to us. Call TIP today on 1-800-938-007. TIP FM's TIP Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecan, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecan, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie Join the conversation in Tipperary. 
Contact us through Facebook, Twitter or email tiptoday at tipfm.com. Now, yesterday we heard uh, from some uh, uh, some of our listeners in Templemore about the proposed development in the town near the town park there by the Templemore Voluntary Housing Association and there is a public meeting uh, about this uh, tonight at 7 o'clock in the uh, Templemore Arms. Um, and we have a statement here today from the Templemore Voluntary Housing Association just to uh, uh, outline their uh, take on this because some claims were made yesterday that the uh, initial development as um, displayed to people uh, changed somewhat. And um, anyway, here is the statement from Templemore Voluntary Housing Association. They were established over 25 years ago. And its mission statement, the provision of quality accommodation at an affordable cost to older people in our community. Uh, The statement goes on to say, currently our association has 15 accommodation units, both apartments and small houses. The demand for affordable accommodation in Templemore is, however, much greater than we can provide with an ageing population. The demand is greatly increasing. A recent uh, planning application has been submitted by the Templemore Voluntary Association to Tipperary County Council for 14 apartments and 10 other units at the former short site and uh, the uh, adjacent property on Main Street. The plans as submitted seek to comply with the apartment density required by town planning in a town centre environment, which the site known as Shorts is. Like many building projects, our plan has evolved from its inception. This is referencing part of a con- conversation yesterday in response to various criteria including the requirements of state authorities who fund our building work and who have very strict guide- guidelines on the densities required. Without the funding provided by such authorities, the project proposed even uh, where planning permission to be granted would not be possible. What has not changed however is the commitment of the Housing Association to continue to assist older people live independently in suitable accommodation in our community. The Board of Templemore Voluntary Housing Association believe the planning application process is the proper form where detailed plans submitted can be viewed, concerns and observations made and objections lodged if desired. All this will be independently adjudicated on by the planning authority. As this process is now underway, we believe it would not be helpful to engage in a public meeting at this time. We are, of course, open to an agreed public meeting at a later date. We're very grateful for the support and assistance our organisation has received for many people, uh, from many people indeed, in our community over so many years, which makes the work we do possible for all this we offer. Sincere thanks. So that is the statement today from the Templemore Voluntary Housing Association and that public meeting is tonight in the Templemore Arms. And now, uh, we made the point yesterday that government officials believe that 60% of Ukrainians that come to Ireland will remain here even after the war ends. Now, Helen um, heard us uh, speak about this yesterday and she joins me now. Good morning to you, Helen. Good morning, Fran. How are you? I'm very well indeed, Helen, and good to talk to you today. Uh, Your thoughts on that would be what, Helen? My thoughts are that if 60% of the Ukrainians remain in Ireland, as long as they're contributing to the country in terms of being employed, etc., they're welcome. You don't have any problem with this whatsoever? I have absolutely no... Sorry, Fran. I have absolutely no problem with uh, any nationality staying as long as they're contributing to the country. The 
idea of 60% of people uh, staying on, um, what about where housing is concerned? Because housing is already a huge issue here and obviously as time goes on, the Ukrainian people will want to be housed properly, not just in, in hotels or in, in centres that are, are built for them. So how, how do you think that's going to work? Well, I think that's going to be a disaster because as it stands, we have uh, over 11,000 Irish people homeless. Mm. And our government is showing no commitment really to resolving this situation. So I would hope, you know, this may sound bad, but it's reality. I would hope that should we'll say 60% of Ukrainians stay, that they will not be given... Um, a position of top of the list and the Irish people who have been waiting five, three, six, ten years for housing to be told, well, actually, these are from the Ukraine, they get precedence. Now, if Ukrainian people stay and if they apply to be uh, Irish nationals and stuff, they, they could be granted citizenship here, which would mean that they would be entitled to uh, anything that uh, anybody else would be entitled to here. Well, isn't that the way it is? But I think I think that 60%, and it is a problem created by our government, actually, because they've left in too many Ukrainians and other immigrants, because they're not the only ones. I think the Ukrainians have been pushed out in front of us as um, a smokescreen for other people who are coming in. And you, you're referring to people from other Albanians, countries com- coming Georgians, in. Yes. We've been reading about it endlessly in the papers about where they've had burst ups. And, the, and the, the rubbish is being thrown, it's the Ukrainians. And it's not. In most cases, it's the Albanians and Georgians. Mm. And they are then pushed off to a nice as a little corner of the country instead of being deported. And do you think a tougher stance is needed with some of the uh, people seeking asylum here? Is that is that what you mean? I certainly do. I think that they need to be vetted in the first place. And then I think a tougher stance needs to be taken when they arrive here and they're in the country and they cause major trouble. We've had stories of rapes as well. And in one case, a Romanian was given a lesser sentence because he can't speak English. And that's a dangerous well, well, I, I, obviously, obviously, I can't stand over that, Helen, because I, papers, I don't have, I have the, the yes, just yeah. I don't have the detail of it in front of me, as you can imagine. But what do you make of what uh, the Minister for Integration, Rodrigo Gorman, has said? Because he was making reference to what's happening in City West at uh, the moment, and he's warning of a very real risk that not every new arrival could be accommodated. In other words, people coming in here could be on the street. Yes, I read that along with he also spoke about uh, putting deportation back in place That's because right. that yeah. collapsed just be, just at the beginning of the pandemic. Of COVID, yeah. So this is where I think is the government has allowed too many Ukrainians in, and it, then there's going to be a snowball effect. So how can you say to people when they arrive on the shores, "Oh, sorry, we've nowhere for you to stay"? Right. They're fleeing from a war situation. Let them go to another country where they can be provided for. Our country is running out of resources. Right. There is a limit. We all know we have a budget. 
if you try to do three times the amount with your budget, then you can possibly do somewhere there's going to be loss. And still, if people are coming from, like, let's, let's stick with Ukraine for a moment, Helen. I mean, you know, yeah. it's, a, it's a war-torn country. Yes. We're seeing, and I, I see the Ukrainian people out my way out around Dundrum, and it, it's largely women with, with little children, and you couldn't help but feel for them, you know. Um, do you, I mean, could you see yourself turning away uh, families like that? Well, here's the situation. Allow them in and then tell them we've got nowhere to put you. You're living on the street. So is that wor- that's worse is what you're saying to me? Is I that think it? that's infinitely worse. That if we can't look the after them, it's worse. Is that it? it? I think it's far worse. You're giving them hope and then you're kicking them in the faces and saying, ha ha, we've nothing for you. And you're going to have to go to the bottom of the list like the rest of our Irish people who are living on the street, our children who are living on the street. We have, we have had people dying on the streets. Mm. Now, the the local authorities, and there was a lovely piece in the, the Nationalist about this today, the local authorities are at pains to say that, you know, Ukrainian people here have not taken social housing and they're not, uh, you know, interfering with the availability of housing here for Irish people or anything like that. It's, it's a totally separate issue. Do you accept that? I accept that, but it is a smokescreen in a way for the financial commitment that's been given to the huge number of Ukrainians. Hmm. It has to. We have to look at reality and say, how much can our country afford? And then, where else is being lost? We see how our health um, health services are not functioning. We and, see how and when we the have government children suffering. And here's the thing, Fran: yeah. these people coming from the Ukraine are going to have post-traumatic stress disorder at the at the least. So they'll need, need some health. mental health uh, services, is oh, that what absolutely. you're saying? Absolutely, gosh. Can you imagine coming from what they're going to come from? Of course they will. We don't have the facilities here. We don't have them for our own young people at the moment. We've nothing. There are people waiting five and six years. And Helen, what do you make of the government's um, response to this when they say, look, we have a legal obligation as part of the EU and we have a moral obligation to take in these people? I, I agree with them, but we need to be careful of the numbers, the sheer, two things, sheer number being left in. And the other thing is that I remember many years ago hearing that in any community, that the people in the community shouldn't be outnumbered by the influx, influx of other people. Hmm. Now, how true that is, Fran? I don't know. Usually I have this stuff checked out, but yeah. I haven't on this one. I'm reading uh, over 70,000 Ukrainians here uh, already, yeah. and uh, we're and expecting a, si- yes, a similar figure expected to mm. seek shelter this year as well. So c- could be a total of 150,000 or more indeed. That is a lot. And where is the money going to come from to support these people? That's the thing is, I'm not saying... I don't want them here, but what I am saying is that where is the finance going to come from to support 150,000 Ukrainians and also keeping this country running and looking after the mental health of our people and looking after the people who are not able to get into a hospital who are being told, stay away from A&E unless you're really, 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 really ill. And in that case, you could be waiting four or five days on a trolley in a lot of hospitals. What about the positives, though, Helen? I mean, you know, if there's a settling down element to what's going on at the moment, I mean, the positive effect for inward migration could be that, you know, they they could certainly help out the Irish labour market because we have an ageing 
uh, population and we will need younger people to, to do the jobs. Well, I've been looking at that too and I think I was thinking about that and the positive effect of multiculturalism. Hmm. Because for... Um, do, do you think there is there are positive effects to multiculturalism? Absolutely, yes. yes. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, you can learn more from speaking to a person from another area than you could possibly learn from a book. Mm. And I, I am an avid reader, so mm. I find that if I'm speaking to somebody who has come from, say, some part of, we'll say Poland, because I have a lot of Polish friends, mm. I learn more from them than I could have learned when I've been in Poland on holidays or anything I've ever read. That's very interesting, isn't it? Because I think about it and I think of their faces and their enthusiasm and all of that. Does it concern you? Because you're making a very reasonable argument with me today and I'm putting forward various different alternatives to you. But does it worry you that if you take a stance like you are and saying, look, we need to cap this in some way just for practical reasons, that you may be seen to be right wing and you may be seen to be racist in some way just for having a, a, a reasonable conversation? Unfortunately, this is the snowflake response of people that they say, if you don't agree with, let leave everyone in, let's leave a million in, you're racist. I have not said one negative thing about any of these people who are coming into our country. What I have said is those who are causing trouble should be deported. I haven't said they are not welcome here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I would question the financial support that is required and where will that loss end up? And the people who are saying anyone who objects is racist Mm. needs to be asked, will you turn up at a hospital and you're being told uh, you'll have to come back in a week and you're seriously ill? Uh, There's no money there. Will you be happy to know that the reason there's no money there is because we have overstretched our budgets by bringing in an uncapped number of uh, refugees and immigrants. You make a very interesting point about the mental health because we've just, in the last few days, we've heard about the issues with CAMS, for example. And a lot of the people here are younger people as well, requiring, as you say, possibly because of post-traumatic stress, some help as well. So... Yeah, it's going to be interesting what happens over the next uh, months and years, isn't it? It is. My heart breaks for the younger people. They've been torn from their their friends, from most of the family. There was their their mum. Maybe a brother is back there fighting. Yeah, and Uh, and the worry and concern about that must be tremendous. And that's why I'm saying post-traumatic stress disorder is probably the least of what they're going to deal with. What support are they going to get here when people who've been on the list for five and six years are still not getting help? And then they're, not, they're too old for CAMS. And CAMS itself is having issues anyway. That's for so sure. I yeah. just think it is creating a horrific scenario. Bring people from a war-torn country, say, we'll give you hope here, but they may have been better off to go to another country where they can get this help. Because we're running out of resources. Right. Helen, really good to talk to you today, and thank you for your contribution to the program. You thank you. Bye bye to you now. 1800 Tip today with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie. At Alstom. Tip today 
with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. Your Peugeot car or van might benefit from a free software upgrade. For more information and to find out if this applies to your vehicle, call the lads in Slattery's Garage, puck on on 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie. Thanks, Pat. Uh, as Pat told you there uh, during news last Thursday, the 19th, at Cashel District Court, three members of the same family received 13 months in jail sentences after pleading guilty to a combined eight charges under the Animal Health and Welfare Act. The ISPCA Senior Inspector Alice Lacey joins me now. Alice, good morning to you. Good morning, how are you? I'm very well at you. Thank you so much for your time today. I was just reading what you said. You reflected on the case, Alice. You said it was one of the worst cruelty cases that my colleague and I have dealt with. It was just dreadful, wasn't it? It was, yes. And I think it was just the gravity of the situation, I think, that hit us when we arrived uh, on the 26th of May in 2021. And, you know, around every corner, there was another dog and another dog and another dog. And um, at that point, we, we called for guard assistance, you know, because we knew that it was going to be a long day. And, of course, we removed others then uh, on the 4th of June in 2021. So it was one of the worst welfare cases that I have dealt with um, to date um, in the last seven years with the ISPCA. From dogs not having any of their basic needs being met to, to injured injured dogs, dogs chained up in sheds and in, der- and in derelict house. It was just, um, yeah, it was harrowing, really, to be there on those days and removing those animals. I was looking at some of the images, and it's certainly not for the faint-hearted, as I don't know how you do uh, what you do, but they were starving. Yes, and I guess there were many different elements of animal welfare to this case. It kind of encompassed everything from the living conditions of the animals, the way that they were being housed, um, no access to fresh drinking water, um, not being able to express their normal behaviour, I guess, as dogs, because the majority of them were either confined in small spaces or tethered or chained up um, right where they were standing. You know, one dog in particular, I think they had posted that story online as well. Uh, One of those dogs was chained so tightly that he couldn't actually, he was in a hunched over position. He couldn't actually move, get into a shelter or sit down, anything. He was just in that one position. And, and that that chain had actually started to cut into his neck. And um, we needed to use a, a bolt cutters to actually remove it oh at God. the time. And um, yeah, it was awful, awful. The dog, many different breeds there. What what was the notion behind it? I mean, were they, had they intended to sell these dogs? What, what was the story there? Or do you know us? Um. I, so there were there were there were litters of pups there as well. There were two litters of pups that we removed, and we also removed um, a heavily pregnant lurcher as well. And only a couple of days later, she gave birth to eight healthy pups. Um, but uh, those, those dogs were basically just housed and kept on the property. Um, for what purpose? There was obviously uh, breeding going on as well. But um, I think those dogs were just there because I guess the people wanted them. That was it. Um, I, I can see no other reason for it, only that they wanted those dogs and to keep them housed like that. The uh, decision by the judge, and, and in fairness to Judge O'Shea, very, very outspoken about this uh, on passing sentence as well. Will, will, will this show, is, is this an example now that there will be repercussions? I think so. Um, we're delighted with the outcome I, on Thursday from Judge O'Shea. And one thing I will say is, I mean, when I when I started with the ISPCA over 
just over seven years ago, I remember at the time cases that were brought to court, even just seven years ago, people would get a large fine, for example, but it wasn't as common for people to get um, custodial sentences, uh, not suspended, um, and, uh, you know, large fines and disqualifications from owning animals. I think as the years have gone on and more welfare cases have been brought to court, um, the judges are becoming more aware of the issues that are in Ireland regarding animal welfare and they're taking steps to, I guess, increase um, increase the sentencing for people. So, um, I mean, the 25-year disqualification for all three family members and the fines imposed, the costs, um, I think it's... I hope that it will pave the way as well for future cases to come. Yes, and hopefully precedent will be set, which is the main thing, isn't it, that uh, the case will be followed uh, for, yes. fu- for, for for the future uh, as well. How do we compare in terms of other countries and the law around uh, looking after animals? How, how do we compare, particularly to the UK, Alice? So I think I kind of always try and describe it as like the size of Ireland as a, as a country were quite small. Um, and I think the the level of of cruelty that we see on a daily basis, cruelty and neglect, is for such a small country. I mean, we're only covering, there's nine inspectors in the country and we only cover our own specific areas. But even what we see on a daily basis, um, you know, it's, and I knew that this year, even after the pandemic, um, it would be extremely bad with the amount of people who've taken on animals that maybe they now find that they can no longer take care of. We have the legislation there, we have the Animal Health and Welfare Act, which came in in uh, 2013 and it came into force in March 2014. Um, we try and enforce that to the best of our abilities when we're out doing these welfare calls. Um, and we're trying to make people accountable for the way that they treat animals in this country. You know, But again, we only know about these situations due to the public picking up the phone um, and ringing in. You know, I know other countries, the likes of Sweden, and some Scandinavian countries have, you know, now have laws in place where you're not allowed to have your dog outside for a specific length of time without bringing them inside. Or, you know, the tethering of animals has become illegal in some countries as well. I'm just hoping that in the future, near future, we will start to go down that route as well. Right. Do we need more wardens as well to police this? So, um well, we have nine ISPCA inspectors in the country, but as well as us, um, the uh, AGS on Garda Síochána, um, all of the guards are also authorised officers under the Animal Health and Welfare Act as well. So they're, they are able to act the same mm. as we would as regards the seizure of an animal if they see that there are welfare issues present. And of course, um, we're on hand to help and assist them in any way that we can as well. Um, we do then have the, the county council um, dog wardens in the country as well that cover their respective areas. Um, I would love in the future to see more ISPCA inspectors covering more counties, definitely. How do you do what you do, Alice? Because I'm sure, like yourself, I'm, I'm a real animal lover and I can't imagine being cruel to them. How, how do you walk away from that? I mean, it must be... Yeah, um, it is, I guess... I think I go into a certain type of mode when I'm on a welfare call. For example, this call with the 27 dogs that, that was finalised last week, I was there with my colleague, Inspector Carroll, on, on both of those days as well. And we just got into we got into work mode where we knew after every animal had been removed and taken to safety, then it was the time to reflect on everything. Then it was the time to think and, uh, you know, to get upset and dejected about that situation. But afterwards, when we're in that moment, we're just trying to... Um, do things 
uh, as efficiently as we can to get those animals out. But it does undoubtedly take its toll on you as a person emotionally and mentally as well. And I just try my best, I think, to compartmentalise that and then um, allow myself to, you know, allow myself to... um, to feel all those different feelings, I guess, what ha- you know, uh, dealing with these welfare cases. But then, of course, we have to maintain a, a level of professionalism as well when we're dealing with the call. Of course, but it, it certainly can't be easy. Did any of the animals not survive, Alice? Um, there was one animal due to serious behavioural issues out of the 27 um, that, that had to be put to sleep. Um, he was so into himself and um, that anything anything around him I guess due to his upbringing was seen as a threat to him um, and a decision true. had to be made on that yes but all of the other animals including the pups that were taken from the property and the ones that were born afterwards uh, all went on on to, to be rehabilitated and find loving homes Right and uh, you know this as in other cases I guess based on a phone call from a, a member of the public is that is that what happens and uh, generally, that's what happens. Yeah. Yes, people will. They can call our our zero eight one eight five one five five one five helpline, or they can actually email and make an online complaint form as well. And um, then those calls are passed on to whatever area, um, therefore to to the relevant inspector, and then we go out and deal with the with the welfare cause. But as I said, we don't know about any of these um, welfare issues on, unless people, you know, continue to pick up the phone um, and ring in about them. Well, congratulations on the wonderful work you do, Alice. As I say, I couldn't do it. I think you're terrific. Thank you for coming on with me. Thank you. Thank you, Fran. Thanks so much. Good morning to you. That's uh, ISPCA Senior Inspector Alice Lacey uh, speaking to me there and reflecting on the case. She said it was one of the worst cruelty cases that my colleague and I have dealt with um, over all of the years. So there you go. On a much happier note, Oscars 2023 brings a record haul for the Irish, the highlight for us in Tipperary, of course, the nomination of Kerry Condon for her performance in the movie, which has swept the boards in this year's nominations uh, with nine nods. And of course, I'm referencing the Banshees of Inishir. And Colin Farrell has been nominated for Best Actor along with fellow Irishman Paul Meskell for his role in After Sun. Mikey O'Loughlin is showbiz editor for RSVP and joins me now. Mikey, good morning to you. Good morning, how are you? I'm very well indeed. What what a result. I mean, Hollywood going green or what? It's absolutely fantastic. 14 nominations in total. And when you look at the two movies that have dominated that on Colleen Kewen, an Irish language mm. movie uh, dominated, um, as well as, of course, um, The Banshees of Inishirin. And both of them have been talked about so much over the last year to so to see that success uh, come to fruition is absolutely incredible. And uh, as you mentioned, Kerry Condon, probably um, the, the sparkling um, joy in that um, as Tipperary native um, nomination for Best Supporting Actress. Both Best Supporting Actress is a, a category that we have done well in as Irish people over the years, uh, with uh, Saoirse Ronan been nominated a couple of times. And when you, when you roll back the years to my left foot, Brenda Fricker uh, taking home the award. Um, so in awards season, we have done quite well so far in, in terms of BAFTA nominations, the Oscars nominations, and Golden Globes wins as well, which kind of preempts a lot of the Oscar success, um, which we will see next month. Colin Farrell's career has been sort of roller coaster in its own way, hasn't it? it does this put him at top of the heap uh, again, Mikey? Well, the roller coaster is a, definitely a good way to describe it. It mm. has had its ups and downs yeah. over the years for sure. Uh, you know, with, he was tipped for success with some movies. They have flopped. 
you did have success with uh, Brendan Gleeson in the past. Both of them nominated for BAFTAs uh, for their roles in In Bruges. They're both back mm-hmm. again nominated for Banshees of Inishirin, which is uh, um, a good sign. But I think a lot of talk, as well as Kerry Condon, a lot of talk is on Paul Meskell yes. and his meteoric uh, rise to fame. I don't think there's any other way to describe that. When you think back almost three years ago when we went into lockdown and the whole of Ireland, then the whole of the UK and then the whole of the world um, became obsessed with normal people and, of course, um, his character of Connell and his famous chain. And to see three years later that he's been nominated for an Oscar, it's just incredible. He hasn't appeared in that many movies or TV shows. His, um, you know, his career has been very short so far at, at age 26, but here he is um, getting an Oscar nomination for his role in Aftersun. Uh, and what can you say about Brendan Leeson? I mean, he's an immense talent, isn't he? And I think he really deserves this. Yes. He's done yeah. so much over the years, from his Harry Potter to his In Bruges to this, um, you know, to his role of playing Donald Trump. He, he's mm-hmm. so versatile. I think out of anybody, he really deserves um, this nod. I suppose as he comes down um, towards the end of his career um, compared to everybody else. Yes. And then you look at Barry Keoghan uh, uh, as well, who another young, um, a young Irish talent, only age 30, and he has had an immense career for when he looked back. It, he appeared in three episodes of Fair City in 2011, was in Love Hate two years later with infa- infamously shooting that cat and, and to go on from where he has been as well. And it does show that um, Ireland has so wealth of talent and um, I think everybody here um, has been deserved. And you look back to Arlene Colin Kuhn, it's been out about a year. It swept the boards of the IFTAs last year and going through all the different festivals throughout the year. We've seen so many headlines that one a month of the different awards that um, Colm and the team have picked up and now this is the one that they have they have wanted. So um, it, it's great success. Why do you th- why do we punch above our weight so so much where where film uh, is and indeed TV is concerned and it's not just the actors. I mean Mark McDonough. I mean whoa, what what a career as well. And you know we've had Jim Sheridan over the years and all the other greats as well. Why why is that? Do you think? I think it's not even just a film and TV. You look at sports as well and the small success that we get at the Olympics um, every four years and our success in, in the World Cups and soccer going back into the 90s. I think Irish people just kind of get on with things. They, we know we're talented in our own ways. We know we don't have the budget that the UK or America or Canada or um, other countries have and we just get on with it and we move on. And I hope that this success this year does shine a light on the industry here in Ireland and that the budgets do come in and that um, now while we have seen movies being filmed in Ireland and they're constantly filmed they they bring in the international stars to star in the movie and it's only um, roles for Irish people you know one day work two day work Um, so hopefully that they see that you know the talent is here and that it's the Irish people can get the big roles and that the money is spent here and that the money is spent on Irish people um, and I suppose you look at Game of Thrones and Derry Girls, two huge successes um, across the world. So hopefully, well, we are seeing it that the Banshees of Inishir and it's going to bring a lot of tourism as well um, to Ackle Island, where it was filmed, and of course, um, the Iron Islands, where it is based. Um, so the more money that drives then course, into Ireland yeah. will just help everybody. Um, in the long run. Do you know, I was delighted with uh, Carrie Crowley's um, success as well because I've been following her career for, I don't know, 40 years, I'd say, certainly 30 years. And remember, she started out in local radio and she was then the, the queen of RTE for a number of years and then she went off to do her own thing. And now she's back with Colleen uh, Kuhn again playing the part of Eileen and, you know, terrific talent as well. 
Absolutely. She's somebody that I think has just ploughed on with her own career after she stepped away from TV presenting. Of course, she presented the Eurovision back in 97 um, and has just kind of quietly done her own things. And again, you know, her her part in this film, you know, I'm sure she'll see that as a massive success. Mm. And hopefully we see more of her going forward as well. And um, to to say like that, you know, she's in probably in the middle of her career and to see that success is great, that you don't just have to be at the beginning to be a Paul Meskel or a Barry Keoghan to have success. You can be a Brendan Gleeson or you can be a Carrie Crowley as well. And indeed, you can be the, a success in uh, using the Irish language as well, which is fantastic. So far, we just have contenders, Mikey. It's important to say this, but do you want to call it for me? I mean... It is hard to tell. And, you know, when you look at the BAFTAs and the Golden Globes, which do, as I, as I mentioned, preempt mm. the win, there are often big shocks that do come up in, in, the, in the finals. But I think uh, there will be success for Martin McDonough and success for um, the Banshees in terms of films and screenplays and those awards, um, the behind-the-scenes awards. But um, in terms of acting, it is quite hard to call. But um, I do think that if we're looking at anyone that will get the success, um, I think we'll be looking at Colin Farrell to pick up an award but as of course Irish people we want to get every win that we can so we'll take um, as, as many awards that come our way and hopefully we get as many uh, as we can. Absolutely and hopefully one of them coming to uh, Tipperary with lovely Kerry Condon. Uh, Mikey it was a real pleasure thank you for your time this morning. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you. Good morning to you. This is Mikey O'Loughlin there, showbiz editor for rsvp.ie with his take on Hollywood going green and all of that. How do you feel about that? Um, did you see the movie, um, Banshees? And uh, if so, do you want to tell me about it? I didn't see it yet and I'm getting very mixed reviews about it, to be totally uh, honest with you. But uh, the powers that be in Hollywood anyway think it's just the biz. Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecan, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecan, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie Tip FM's Tip Today with Fran Curry In association with Slattery's of Pecan, Tipperary's main Peugeot dealer. Slattery's Garage Pecan, the name you can trust for over 50 years in the Premier County. Slattery'sGarage.ie Do you know, I'm thinking of writing a book that would include some of the extremely strange text and WhatsApp and emails that I get in that I can't read out on air. <laughs> Because it would make a very a very strange read, that's uh, for sure. Now, on Monday, we heard the sad news that Maloco in Carrick and Shore is uh, to uh, close. And we also heard about Wellworth in uh, Tipperary Town and, indeed, other businesses around the county as well forced to uh, close. On the basis of that, Thomas made contact with us and he joins me now. Good morning to you, Thomas. Good morning, Frank. And uh, great to talk to you today. I suppose one of the points made on Monday was that maybe there's an obligation on us to shop local and to buy our, our, our goods and services locally. But you have some comparisons to make for us, Thomas, and it's, it's not good. Yes, Brian. Like, our house is no different. Your house and every, every other person's house at the moment. Like, things are things are tighter, the cost of electricity and groceries and all that. But, you know, I was just looking around there recently and just say my work boots, for example... Mm. I can get them delivered to my door considerably cheaper than what I can in the local supplier sales place that we're, we're selling. Like up to the tune of nearly 20 euros wow. from an Irish company 
dropped to my door. Um, you know, my work gloves. Now, I know the last time I, I checked out the price of them, it was with one of the... Well, they've been renowned for being dear. They're in all our major town mm-hmm. companies. And, uh, like, if I was... I bought 50 pairs at a time because I use them constantly. Like, I had 15 pairs free, Fran. With what you saved by buying with online. what I saved. If I was to go to that company, uh, opposed to where I got them, I had 15. They got to 15 pairs. And, and and Thomas, when you break that down for me, a, a pair of gloves online is one fifty. What would it cost you locally? The last time I looked at them in in that place, now this place were known for expensive. They were three fifty. Right. So I mean, there will be as as a business person and with things the way they are with yeah. cost of living, you, you'd find it hard to justify shopping. Like I'm locally. only a small little one man van yeah. doing yeah. guard maintenance, going around. You know what I mean? And every every euro I earn and my good wife earned is bloody hard earned. And it has to go as far as it can go. So, look, yeah, use them or lose them, your local shops, but we have to, like, find every hen is a scratch for itself. Yeah, yeah. Do you know, and... Um, and particularly you know, example, nowadays, Thomas, I suppose. Oh, totally, Fran. Yeah. Totally, like, do you know, our e- the cost of ESB, yeah. oil, like, and our wages, and your wages, and people's wages haven't, haven't increased to offset for the increases. So for certain, yeah. we have to box clever. And, uh, you know, particularly a few months ago, I mean, diesel must have been a big, big thing for you, was it, with, with the nature of your work? Not for me personally, Fran. I have yeah. a small old van and I don't, my, look, I go to the same places every yeah. week. Yeah. The, the farthest I have to go is Ballypatrick and near Kilsheila and the rest of them, it goes from there to 500 metres from home. Right, so it, it it wasn't too much no, of an issue for No, and the know. old van is old and she's low. She's only a 1.3 engine. So, you know, if you if you promise it easy to go, <laughs> you, you know, not like right. other. Yeah, um, but, but you're, you're doing your own thing, Thomas, and you're self-employed and, you know. Yeah, you know, you have to, you have to do your own thing, as you say. Is, is that tough at times? I mean, do you doubt yourself at times and say, look, I'd be better off to go and work for somebody or something? Well, two days a week I work for I work for a, a great establishment. Right. And they're excellent to me. And um, so I wouldn't leave them for the world. Right, so you do a mixture of both. And then the other days then I'm, I'm for myself. Right, very good. And have you noticed, you, you, you do, is it maintenance work you do on yeah. properties? Uh, yeah. Yeah. And have you As noticed... In the garden. Pick weeds, Fran. Oh, we very good. We, we, won't, we won't beautify it. Pick well, weeds. Well, Thomas, I, I could badly do with you. I'll tell you, the weeds are taking over on me, I can tell you. Um, uh, tell me, have you noticed a drop, though, in, you know, can people afford the luxury of having Thomas pick their weeds now? Um, be quite honest, Fran, I had, I had a lot of very good customers and they're still there, but, you know, you take... When you're getting constant work, repeat work, week in, week out, mm. you take that. Yes, yeah. And so, I'm sorry, some people had to be disappointed, but I have to I have to do what's best for me and my family. Absolutely, and you know, there's a loyalty factor there as well. If people are good to you, you'll, you'll look after oh, them. Of course, I'll re- yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. And um, 
I, I find you it know, incredible. You you would save twenty euro though on a pair of work boots by buying them yeah, online. The last time I bought my work boots, now I'm looking down from trying to get shook, so I'll be on, I'll be on the <laughs> Mr. Google again. Right. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I did. And well, uh, I get another example from yeah. I do with the cycling. You know the tablets we put into our bottle, the electrolytes. Yes, of course. Yeah. Well, the last time I checked the price of them in one of the big health food shops that are in lots of towns around the country. Yeah. Um, not naming any names. Yeah. They were eight euros. And I'm getting them delivered to my door. I buy six packs at a time. Um, there's free delivery with company over 35 euros. So 36 euros for the six things. So I have two free. I have two tubes free. Yeah, you see, you can't argue with that. Sure you can. There's no argument. Yeah. You know, and I'm sorry to the local shops and the local people, you know, the, the wonderful shops all around us, but, uh, you know, what can, we, what can we do? Yeah, Darren Ward spoke to me uh, the other day. Darren has a jeweller shop over oh, yeah, in, in, in Care, And, you know, he reckons, now, Darren is, isn't elderly by any chance, I think he's in his 40s, but he was saying he thinks he will be the last of the generation of retailers, like, in his family, that, you know... In terms of keeping a shop and battling against the elements and all of that, he thinks that after he's finished with it, it's done. Probably is. But look, friend, go on. Like, we don't even have to go and do our grocery shopping anymore. Yeah, we can get it delivered to the door, I suppose. For pittance. For probably nearly less than what it costs you to go. For less than what it costs you to drive in and use your time and walk around the shop and pick off the shelf. And is that the way it's going, you think, Thomas? A hundred percent, regrettably. And, of course, we're caught up in the circus of of it at the moment, but, like, that's the way it is. Yeah. And, of course, the pity about it is to see so many vacant businesses in in town centres and the like then, but you're saying to me that that's that's the way things are. We have to rethink town centres, I suppose. Fran, town centres died when... Um, all these regulations came in about people living over shops. Right. You just take out... Now, the town, the main street of Cashel yeah. is... Cashel is a... Look, I'm from outside of myself. Mm. You're from it. Yeah. It's a mighty town. Yeah. But how many people are living on the main street? Very, very few. Now, Cashel is a wonderful town. Mm. Um, but... What is the population of the main street of Cashville? I'm not sure, but it would be modest enough. And are you saying that people should be living and there should be conversions to over shops? <laughs> there should be, Fran. Yeah. Like you take the O'Connor Street in Clonmel after yeah. six o'clock or seven o'clock. Yeah. Like that, I know yeah. we have to have regulation and fire escapes and all that, but do you know it's, it's too far east west. It should be made easier for people to to live in the centre of towns. You think? We have the high the housing crisis that we have. Yeah, yeah, and and that I think that must happen because what else will replace the the business? You won't have other businesses going into these properties now, so you know. No, but yeah. what what businesses are opening up? Cafes. Cafes, yeah. yeah. Phone, phone shops. Um, phone shops. Yeah, gambling joints. All, all of that. Well, kind of yeah. 
Yeah, gambling giant. Thomas, really good to talk to you today, and the be- best of luck to you, Thomas. And thank you. Oh, uh, Lovely. I must to go talk. back. I must go back and pick my weeds. <laughs> and mind those boots, Thomas. Oh, uh, mind them. Mind them. Bye bye. Bye bye, Thomas. Bye bye, Julian. Thomas, Thomas uh, speaking to us from, I guess, around around the Cashel area this morning. Awake in the West, uh, fantastic production taking place this week at the Abbey Mill Theatre in Feathert and uh, brought to you by the wonderful uh, Feathert players. I think it kicked off last night. It's uh, producer Marion Gilpin uh, joins me now. Marion, good morning to you. Hi, good morning, Fran. It's great to be on to you about live theatre again. Well, you're, you're, we're yeah. delighted to, to highlight live theatre. It did kick off last night, didn't it, Marion? It did, actually. We had a wonderful night. It, it was a great day for the Irish all around. Wasn't it Between just? Oscar nominations... And my wonderful cast getting a standing ovation in Abbey Mill. And well-deserved, I'm sure, indeed. Yeah. yeah. And people from... I saw people from Clonmel, and friends of mine from outside Clonmel, Kilsheelan, Mulhone, you know, diverse area, which was so wonderful for to have them back in the theatre again. And I presume a new appreciation after being sort of separated from theatre and drama for, for so long. Maybe a new appreciation of, of live work, I suppose, Marion. Oh, my goodness, yes. Because you, you could feel, um, you know, the, the fact that they were so wanted to laugh, so wanted to enjoy themselves. And, and you, could, you could sense... And I often feel, you know, I'm very passionate about Abby Bill myself um, as I was there with Osti from the very beginning, mm, you know, when yeah. we turned it into a theatre way back quite a while ago now. In fact, 30 something years, 1988. Is it that it long ago? Oh my God. Yeah. Yep. And you could feel, you know, as somebody said to me, it's one of the best theatres in the country because for acoustics, it's got seven foot thick stone walls and wooden beams, you know, which totally absorb the sound. Yeah, and it's so atmospheric it's, as well there. Oh, man, it is, it? Yeah. yeah. I was yeah. I was down there now with... My son is actually doing my lighting and sound for me. And we were down there doing um, um, sort of a check for, the, you know, the music yeah. that I'd chosen. The theatre was empty and you could almost feel... We were, I said, I can almost feel the walls responding to me. You know, you, you could see that they were... Delighted. Okay. No, there have been many shows there. Like um, it's the first feather players, but I mean, we've had the school show and Anastasia Blake at her yeah. Fantasia Academy, but it's the first time the feather players, and it seems to respond. It's their home, and it responds to them. Of course, it, it does. Might, it might sound mad, but no, not at all. I, I, I know exactly yeah. where you're coming from because I, I, I work in a lot of theatres and you can quite often get that, that feel of energy or something special about them. Tell me about the play because it's very funny, isn't it? It's a very funny play. It was written by uh, Thomas J. or Michael, I think, J. Mm. Ginelli mm. up in the west of Ireland. And it's your typical scenario, you know, of your kind of... Um, house somewhere by the sea and the influence of the sea and this old fella Tom Healy dies of the drink and his daughter obviously the the family uh, haven't been around him the daughter comes back to mind him in his last days from they, they don't say where 
and the son comes back from America and all the neighbours are obviously coming into the way to pay their last respects. Most of me is drinking neighbours. And then you have the two, what I would call, um, fogies from around. One is like the banshee of insurance. She's she's kind of that, you know, sneaky, sneaky type. And she wants everything for herself. Great car. And Walsh is playing a fantastic part in, in that. Mm. You know, uh, absolutely superb. She reminds me so much of our beloved Anne Connolly now. She's almost taken her her place. Brilliant. And yeah. um, the other one then is kind of the slightly more frightened neighbour. And the two of them come in to pay their respects. And the the, the banshee type deal she decides that she she wants his teeth. <laughs> and the other one who's been played by Mary Boland. Now, Mary Boland is from Mary Boland Prendergast. Mm. She's from my Lass. Because some of these, I've never had her in the Feather Players before. Yes. Um, but I came across her. I was doing um, a sketch for Mashi Tynan and those involved in in different things out in yes. my glass during the summer months. And we um, we did an Easter rising thing, you know. Mm. And I spotted Mary. Mary was involved. And she has natural comic qualities. So I contacted her. And, of course, she was delighted. Oh, that's great. But, it's great to discover know, new talent like that, isn't it? Yeah. And then I have two more. I have PJ Heenan, um, who's well-known in Feathered, who's never really got a chance to be on the stage in his life before. And Una, Una Kiernan, she's married to Damien Byrne. Hmm. She's a teacher out in Cluneen. So I'm coming from a wide area, you know. Oh, that's great. Is there, there, so there, there's, great. A, there's a love interest as well, I, I, I guess. Is oh, there? yeah, well, that's our yeah. own Eve Hayes. Eve yes. was very much a part of the Feather Players. And I was delighted uh, to be able to get Alan Burke, who is um, an absolutely talented performer. Hmm. He'd be mostly with Anne Williamson and oh, excellent. like yeah. that. But yeah. anyway, he decided he'd row in with me in this production. And, you know, he's absolutely brilliant in part. That's the love interest. And then we have um, the body himself, who's a really, really nice guy from Rose Green. Again, who was never on stage before, but now has... Um, if you like, the happy time of spending all of two acts <laughs> dead as a dodo. <laughs> oh, I love it indeed. I, I hope there's some tickets left, or I'm sure they're going extremely well at this point. Are there, there? Do you know what, what there is, Fran? It's, it's completely sold out. Is it? Oh. Except for about three or four tickets. Right. But if it was someone like you, Fran, and you said... Marion Gilpin round. <laughs> I'd make sure I'd get you, you in. You might get in. You might get in. Uh, yeah. um, and if people want to pick up those few tickets that are, are left, you're running until when? Saturday night. Until Saturday night. Okay. Yeah. And and there's a, f- a couple of tickets for what night? Saturday. Saturday. Okay. It's and the only night. Okay. Um, no, the the only chance if it was maybe if they came along and said, "Is there any chance?" Right. Um. They. We might be able to put them behind in the balcony, but we can't put any loose chairs in the 
Of course, of course. Yes. You know, How could you go about finding yeah. out about that? Is there a phone number that people could could call, Marion? Um, well, they could contact me. Okay, okay. Well, what we'll do is that we'll get them to contact Emma here and we will put them in touch because I don't want to put your, your phone number out over the... No, the, I, the I, I wouldn't want it out either because, you know, it it, it kind of um, is really... I'm I'm so thrilled. Like, the, the online booking, we did this for the first time. Yes. And it's worked a dream. We know exactly that we're booked out for the week. That's we knew it last night before they actually went on stage. Very good indeed. Well, Any of the walk-ins now last night... Uh, were taken up. Right. You know, there were walk-ins last night, but they were taken up, and you know, it was absolutely marvelous. And even I was at that stage. We were checking through effects because I'm very particular about the music, the incidental music I'd use in a play, because I don't want it to be identifiable with anything that yes. anyone would be able to say. Oh, that's from that program, or that's from that program. So I chose music from a group called Nomas. They've broken up. But John Spillane would have started out with them. In I, I'm well Cork. aware of their work. A wonderful band they were in their time. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah, So, yeah. and I chose a piece of music and we use that going through the act, so... Oh, brilliant indeed. I know um, Mihalos Alon, uh, in fact, helped out that group greatly at one stage. Um, Marion, be- yeah. best of luck for the next few days. And thank you so much for coming on with us today and break a leg in all of that. Okay, uh, we'll break a few legs. <laughs> Good luck to you, Marion. Bye-bye to you now. That's uh, Marion Gilpin there, um, who is the producer of Awake in the West. There may be. There may be a few tickets left if you want them. If you want to call Emma, we'll see if we can uh, put you in touch uh, with uh, Marion. 1800-938-007. Join the conversation in Tipperary. Contact us through Facebook, Twitter or email tiptoday at tipfm.com. Tip Today with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie If it matters to you, it matters to us. Call Tip Today on 1-800-938-007. This one says, I saw the Banshees and I thought it was excellent. Colin Farrell and Brendan Gleeson were just brilliant, but all of the Irish actors were great. It was lovely to see them all, including our own Pat Short as well. Of course, Pat, uh, very much part uh, of that. I think um, uh, John Kinney uh, was in it as well. I didn't obviously get to see it uh, yet. Um, Mick from Feathered sent about 50 texts to say that, that he saw he saw the film. I don't think he was all that impressed with it. He says the best thing, and he said it's a spoiler alert, um, that the sheepdog uh, dragged the sheep shears out the door and the Oscar should go to the sheepdog. <laughs> says Mick from Feather. I must see it. I really, really must see it. But um, yeah, I'm just looking at more stuff here. Uh, yeah, some of our listeners are not impressed at all, but there you go. Uh, the pass rate stats emerged recently. The pass rate at a driving test centre in Cork was nearly twice as high as one centre in Dublin last year. Seemingly, there's a 37% difference between the areas with the highest and lowest pass rates. Ballancolig Test Centre in Cork had a pass rate of 75% last year, which was the highest in the country. And the two centres with the lowest pass rates were in Dublin, one in Mulhuddert at 38%, and the other in Charlestown at 39%. Now, one of our listeners, Tony, joins me. Now, Tony, good morning to you. Good morning, Fran. You think this is strange, to say the least, Tony? 
I think it's extremely strange. Uh, given that um, approved driving instructors, everybody now has to do a set number of lessons with an approved driving instructor. Mm, I think it's 12, Tony, is it? Well, it can be six as well. Oh, can it? Okay. Um, for people coming from certain countries that have a full licence, they are entitled to apply for what's called reduced essential driver training, reduced PDT. Oh. Okay. That can be six lessons. Oh, very interesting. Yeah. Basically, it's, it's uh, 12 lessons for new drivers. And uh, they have to be done and recorded and stamped, etc., by an approved driving instructor. And uh, I am an approved driving instructor. Uh, I have I'm regulated by the Road Safety Authority. Uh, I'm tested them. I actually have a test for them next week uh, to make sure that I'm up to the standard required. Mm-hmm. We have to do that every two years. All right. So there's ongoing supervision, is there? Ongoing supervision, yes, rather than training. The Road Safety Authority actually have put in writing uh, only a couple of weeks ago that they are not a training authority. So it would be very interesting to know who trains the testers. And and what do you know about the tester? I mean, who trains the tester? What, what criteria, what qualification do you need to be a tester? I don't know. That is a question that should be put to the RSA. Right. Um. I know, the, the, getting back to the driving test and the pass rates and things, I am very concerned in relation to this. We've had a driving test, as far as I know, going back to around 1962, 63, as far as I'm aware. Mm. And it's, I know I did my test in 1976 in a car, and it's barely changed since. Yet our vehicles and our road network have changed beyond all recognition. And is it true, Tony, that there's no aspect of motorway driving as part of the test? Correct. Learner drivers are not allowed on a motorway. Yet, if they pass their tests, they are then allowed on a motorway on their own, supposedly never having been on one before. But that's madness. Absolute madness. And we have here uh, um, an organisation charged with road safety, the Road Safety Authority, coming out with a Vision Zero. I would submit it Zero Vision. Uh, you cannot have people going on a motorway never having been on it before as learner drivers. In England, I know it's not really appropriate at the moment because they are no longer an EU country, mm-hmm. but they had a huge um, reshuffle of their test uh, recently, and drive, part of the test is now a test on a motorway. And and rightly so, I think. You, well, make, you make another very interesting point, that there's a huge difference between doing a test in a small country town that doesn't have a load of traffic and maybe a town that has lots of traffic. Exactly. There is no consistency in the test. You can go, and I won't single out any particular place, but I'm sure people, basically, if you go to the west of Ireland, there are test centres there that have no access to, by and large, bus lanes, cycle lanes, in cases, no traffic lights, mm. uh, no dual carriageway near there. And it, it, it's ludicrous. It's 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 uh, the standard is is totally different I- I around the country depending on the test centre. And I presume then, Tony, from your experience, can you t- is there a huge amount of chance and luck involved in whether or not you get your test? There, there definitely is. When you look at the figures, and I mean, I, I had a look there over the last while, and taking Clonmel last year was sixty three point two percent. And uh, going back last year, or in 2021, 61.8, in 2047, in 1953.1, in 2018, 44, 
1757. Go back to 2008, it was 50.4. See, Nina is even more startling. Last year, it was 46.8. Uh, 2021, 42.1. 20. 2020, 47.8, 1962.6. And going back to 2008, it was 69.1. So there's a huge discrepancy. And I would have to submit that as we are all ADIs and we're all uh, tested by the Road Safety Authority, that the standard must be fairly consistent throughout the country of ADIs, even that we're being tested by the one body. So essentially it's down to the, the testing then, is it? I would have to submit it's down to testing and also have the routes changed. Because yes. they, they can, well, I would have to submit that the, the, the um, criteria for the student, it hasn't really changed much. Your average student throughout the country having done their lessons and having put themselves forward, their, their, um, their driving ability is going to be pretty static, I would have thought, in relation percentage-wise. It, it's not going to be hugely different. And again, let me call on your experience, Tony. What needs to happen? I mean, there should be some sort of balance to this or some sort of fair play. What needs to happen? Well, I think we need to look at our test and make it suitable for modern uh, road network. The other side of it is, Fran, that we have here a situation where somebody 18 years of age, they takes a test in the car, passes that test. They are never, ever, ever again tested on their ability to drive unless a court directs or unless they go and uh, look for a, a different category of a licence. And that seems ludicrous. When we are tested as, as, as uh, trainers, we are tested every two years. Why aren't the public asked to do a refresher course, something similar. Why don't insurance companies come along on board as well? That if you've done a refresher course, that you know that you could maybe earn a percentage discount, something like that. Well, I suppose the answer there would be look at the backlog the way it is at the moment, Tony, and I mean, that would only add to the chaos. Well, the backlog has been allowed to happen. Yeah. Um, we have a census every few years. That gives us an indication of where we should be looking. Yet, obviously, we're not. Now, I know COVID had a huge impact on things like testing, and uh, I'm sure a lot of testers w- would agree that, it, you know, it, it, mm. it didn't help at all. But certainly we need a modern test as well. Well, it's very interesting. I'm just looking at the screen in front of me here. We're getting a reaction to this, but sadly we're out of time. So, Tony, if you wouldn't mind, we'd love to go back to this in the near future um, because there's a big interest in it. Thank you for your time this morning, no Tony. No problem at all. Thank you. Good morning to you. That's uh, Tony speaking to us today. That's about it for me. Let me leave you with a comment from Robbie, who's in Templemore. He said... <laughs> This is his review of the Banshees of Inishir. He said, It was the greatest load of SH1T that I've ever seen. How it got awards, I'll never know, says Robbie in Templemore. That's it for me. Emma produced, Ellie looked after her content, uh, and uh, Stephen is on the way. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Tip today with Fran Curry With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie.